何What's happening, party people, and welcome to another edition of Talking During Movies. This one, folks, this is going to run chills up and down your spine and hopefully stimulate your brain as well. I have with me the captain, the king himself, the man, the myth, the legend, the other Hoff, the more handsome Hoff, though you're not going to find him in the sand in the Speedo. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Hoffman. Steve, how are you, sir? Hey, thank you for all the compliments. I am here. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here. And we are going to be watching one of my favorite movies, The Shining. What makes this one of your favorite movies? This is one of my favorite films because I was young when I saw it. Mm -hmm. It was, I'm not a horror film fan. I am not, you know, I don't like all the slasher movies. But this film just mesmerized me because there are so many layers to it. It is so complex. And if you actually start to analyze this film you can analyze it on so many different levels and there are all these competing theories about the movie that make it just like unlike any other film and it's a film that has been referenced in so many other movies oh this is i mean i couldn't agree with you more this is i mean we get a you've got conspiracy theorists jumping back to a moon landing you've got the idea that alcoholism poisons the brain that loneliness is 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 what destroys the soul of the person i mean you just there's so many moving parts all right so real quick before we before we hit play here how can people get in touch with you if they want to engage with you what are the social media platforms that you that you uh that you're on I'm on all the social media platforms. So if you want to get me, just search for founderspace.com on any of the social media platforms. You can find me on LinkedIn, Steve Hoffman. And actually one of the best ways to get a hold of me is come to our website, founderspace.com. You can find all about me. We have tons of stuff for entrepreneurs. That's what I do. Excellent. I love it. So let's, uh, let's get after the film here. Go ahead and hit play. Let's make sure we're on mute. Perfect. Newbies on mute, not us, hopefully. And uh, let's get so real quick. Let's, uh, as you know, the the credits roll and and we have all this excitement. Um, Founderspace.com. Talk to the people about it. What do you? So, Founderspace is we're a startup incubator and accelerator. So, we help startups succeed. And I know about this because I've done three venture funded startups in Silicon Valley. I did two bootstrapped companies and I wrote a book surviving a startup which you know published by Harper Collins which goes into excessive detail on everything entrepreneurs need to do nice so you know in this world of startups right now we're um, we've navigated these waters a little bit it seems like everything's changed and nothing's changed at the end of the day you know they're gonna bootstrap or you need money 
But now there's all these other elements to engage with people, all those social media elements. You know, it seems like the, the networking days are, are gone of pressing the flesh and pounding the pavement. And now it's, can you get the right quip, the right follow, the right person to engage with you as a person who's, you know, gone through these waters and you've seen the evolution and change, where, where do you recommend efforts go if you're a startup, if you're a startup? So if you're a startup, there's so, it's like drinking from a fire hose. There is so, I mean, there's so much out there that you can, that you can do. I tell entrepreneurs, uh, what you need to do, first of all, is ignore all that other stuff. Like there's, don't worry about your social media presence. Don't worry about, you know, all this, the, the latest trends and things. Focus on solving a problem for a customer. Okay. That is what great entrepreneurs do. And they don't just solve any problem because there are a lot of problems people have that they don't want to pay for. They don't mm -hmm. really care about really what we call high value problems where there's an extreme need. If you can identify an area where there's this, people are like, Oh my God, I need that solution today. Then there is an opportunity for you. Nice. Very cool. I like that. It's a, uh, it's interesting because that's also the hardest part because then you have to understand people and you have to understand people's pain points. You do. And, and you have to respect them. And, and you know, there's this big myth out there with startups that doing a start, you can't start a startup until you have that magic idea, that epiphany that, <laughs> you, you know, and that the idea is all important. And if you don't mm -hmm. have the right idea, you're, you're going to fail. Well, ideas are important, but they're not that important at the beginning. And this is where a lot of, uh, books will, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs won't even dive into it until they have that idea they fall in love with. I actually tell entrepreneurs that your chance of success is going to be higher if you don't have any fixed idea of what you want to do than if you have an idea. Really? And yeah. And, and the reason for this is um, because your idea is probably wrong. Nine out of 10 times, whatever you have in your head is wrong because you you haven't tested it in the real world. You don't know everything. You know, I was just talking to an entrepreneur who said he came, you know, he identified a problem that people had. Mm -hmm. And it was that the nurses had to fill out, you know, update vaccines and, and, and medical records for all these patients. And, and in the hospitals, they were outdated and it was really cumbersome. So he built a whole automated solution for this. Spent a lot of time and a lot of money. He went out to, you know, we thought, well, that's a real problem. People are, you know, have to have their, their medical vaccine records updated. Otherwise, you know, they'll be treated in the wrong way when they go into these hospitals. Sure. He went out to the hospitals and he found out they didn't care. They're like, yeah, that would be nice to have. But they, they, they didn't buy it. <laughs> they were like, it wasn't a priority for them. So is, even, that, is that real quick? I'm sorry to interrupt, but is that because people don't like, I mean, I've been in the financial service industry off and on for almost 30 years. And everyone's like, we're going to change the mortgage industry. We're going to change the title companies. I'm like, you guys, they wanted this slow. They wanted this cumbersome. They needed this way because efficiency and speed is not their master. Their master is holding you accountable to things. And so you're trying to change a problem in a supply chain that's 900 people deep. And you're in the middle going, if I change this, it fixes everything. And they look at you and go, there's 900 other people around us. And yeah. none of them care. Yeah, it's, it's hospitals are huge bureaucracies, right? Things are done the way they're done. Trying to get them to change and introduce something new into their process, extremely hard. Yeah. And, and so, uh, you know, I have a rule. If you have to educate your customer, 
mm-hmm. uh, you've already failed. Like <laughs> you have to I convince like them that they need you. You know, a great customer isn't somebody who goes, "Oh, that's really interesting," or "That's really nice." Those people will never buy from you. The only customers who are really going to give you their business when they see what you have, they're like, "Oh my God, I want that. I want that now." Like, can you give that? How can I get that? So this is this is what you don't know when you start. Like you you don't see. So I tell entrepreneurs, what you you don't want to lock down on one idea. What you want to do is pick an area an industry and and an area in that industry that you think you you can make a big difference in with new technology, because technology is the easiest way to change something. Sure. And what you need to focus 80% of your time on is not trying to figure out initially what the right idea is before you start. It's finding the right people to actually go in there with you and start iterating, start experimenting, start trying all these different things and really listening to the customer to figure out where that extreme need lies. It's almost like you timed this up with a movie as we're in the interview process. Yes. So here's the question. How do you interview a partner? How do you interview someone to share your heart, your desire, your dream with, and yet give them the permission to whip that heart out, put it in between some tin foil and pound it with a hammer and turn it from a heart into a thin, crispy, beautiful chicken fried steak sandwich. Okay. So how do you, (laughs) so, so, so you, when you're trying to find a partner, how do you interview your partner? Yeah. The, you know, finding that it's like getting married. Like if you screw up this initial part, you're you're gonna you're gonna live to regret it, and it kills a lot of businesses. And and the businesses it doesn't kill right away. A lot of them struggle on, just like marriages, mm-hmm. and both both parties are very unhappy. So what you need to do this is why I say take eighty percent of your time, not building your product, not going out there raising money, not even talking to customers at the very beginning, finding the amazing people who you really connect with. First of all, number one, look for integrity. Like what have they done in the past? Have them tell you stories about what, how the businesses they've done and how they've done them, how they approached them, the hard decisions that they have made. So you need to ask and listen very carefully to the very difficult decisions they made and what guided them to make those decisions. Is that, is their thinking like yours? Is there, are their values aligned with yours? really important. Okay. If you can't trust your partner, even if they're the most talented person in the world, mm-hmm. don't get in bed with them. Like, yeah. It's, it's going to be, it, it, you will always regret that decision. Okay. So what you want, even if they're going to put in money, it doesn't matter. Do not take them on. So number one, their values and integrity. Number two, their capabilities. Like, are they the person you need to get to the next level? Do they complement your skills? What do you need to execute in this area on, you know, really changing this industry. If you're not a a technology wizard and you need one, find, no, don't go and find, you know, cousin Joey who just, you know, you know, isn't that great, but is available. You you need to work to find like the really best person who's totally on the ball, who knows all the latest technologies, who is constantly hacking and experimenting and downloading SDKs. That type of person will pay off tenfold compared to somebody else. Nice. I like that. It's it's a weird world, right? Because, you know, it's there's a balancing act. I wonder how you balance in the past, as you said, you know, you can start off going in one direction, left, and you end up going right. You right, and that's why the team matters so much because yeah. you're going to start off with whatever initial ideas you have. And it's so much easier when you have no money 
uh, it's so much easier to get a quality person on your team to join you when you don't say, hey, go quit your six-figure job over there and come work for me for free on my idea. Like mm -hmm. you say that at an early stage, they're like, why should I quit my job at Microsoft to work for you on your idea? It's better to say, find people who are, when you're interviewing them, who are passionate about what you're passionate about. They want to change this industry. It's something they want to do. And you tell them, we're going to do this together. Like I have a lot of ideas. I'm sure you have a lot of ideas. We're going to go into this industry and we're going to start to figure out where we can make a real difference. Then you get them on board and they're a true partner. That will get them to actually uh, take, you know, quit that golden, you know, job and mm -hmm. come join something much more risky. Now, do you, at the beginning, at the middle, at the end, or is this during the interview process, how do you start to delegate? Because I see the hardest part when I see, especially a startup, is it seems like a teeter-totter and it's so lopsided. The person with the ideas doesn't let go enough. And so they're at the end and everyone's here at the top waiting to get some information so they can balance things out. But this person holds on to all of it and then ends up doing all the work, burning out. And the people who left that six-figure job feel disenfranchised because they came over thinking they were going to be a part of something. And instead they were just a cog in a different wheel. That is a, it's a great metaphor you're using. And, you. <laughs> that, and I will tell you, um, Jack Nicholson is being interviewed right now. So we're watching yeah. him being interviewed at the, the, the hotel. Um, we'll, uh, when you are engaging people and when you bring them on, uh, that's why it's very important that you divorce yourself from your ideas. It doesn't matter whose idea it is. Because when a founder takes the idea and just they own it and they want credit for it and they don't want to share and they, and they end up, uh, you know, concentrating all the decision-making power in them, their mm -hmm. chance of failure is so much higher. Like okay. it's, it's exponentially higher. And this is why if you have, one person, one brain, totally engaged, coming up with new ideas, you know, iterating, trying stuff, that's powerful. But if you have four brains doing that and doing it together, you get this, this network effect of all these people that is so much more powerful. Mm -hmm. So great managers at, from the very beginning, from the first day, they don't care whose idea it is. Let me tell you, uh, Elon Musk, he didn't come up with the idea for Tesla. It wasn't his company. It was, he was an angel investor, right? But he gets, ah. he, yeah, a lot of people don't know that. He was, he was an angel investor and he gets all the credit now because, you know, the world yeah. likes, likes to give credit to the CEO, but he, uh, you know, he, he just saw it was a great idea and glommed onto it and basically took it over. Steve Jobs, who everybody reveres, right? Yeah. He didn't invent the Mac operating system. Xerox yeah. Park did, you yeah. know, he walked in there, saw a great idea invented by great people, took it and then let his team run with it. And then of course, you know, he gets all the credit because that's the way society works, but it really smart CEOs out there. Uh, they don't care who came up with the idea. All mm -hmm. they care is that it's great. So what you want to do from the earliest stages of your company is to go to your employees and say, what ideas do you have? Do you have a better idea? How can we do this better? What could you know? You know, how can we figure this out? Always, instead of telling them what to do and feeling like as a CEO, you have to make all the decisions, mm -hmm. ask them what to do. Now, this is my golden rule. It is called ask, don't tell. 
Okay. And I want all your entrepreneurs out there to do this. I want you to go into the office for a, the next week, the next the next week. And every time you feel compelled to tell somebody to do something because you think you know better, because you've been doing this for the past 10 years, bite your tongue and ask them. So let's say you're planning an event. Go to your, mm -hmm. instead of telling your employees, okay, let's plan this event on this date and we'll do it like this and, you know, go to this vendor and, you know, get this location and all that stuff you have already done a thousand times. Go to them and say, what do you think would make a great event? What can we do that's different from our previous events? How can we make this something people will talk about and remember? What, as soon as you do that, you turn your employee from a, a robot taking orders and you having to tell them every step of the way into a creator. And they're mm -hmm. like, oh, my boss is asking me, how can we make this an event like we've never had before? How can we make this an event that's extraordinary that people will talk about? All of a sudden you've activated their brain and they're gonna come back to you with ideas. Now, if you don't like their ideas, which you may not, you can ask them, you know, that's really interesting. You know, have you thought of this? Could you come up with a better idea? What about this? Keep the questions coming. You don't have to tell them, you know, you don't have to shoot them down. You just keep the questions coming so that they keep being challenged to improve and improve and improve upon it. This, if you do this with all your team members around everything you're doing with your products, your services, your customer service, your sales, asking your sales rep, how do you think we can get more sales? You know, not just go out and get more sales, work harder, you know? Yeah. What do you think we're saying in our presentation that isn't resonating? What, 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 how would you change our sales process? Every time you ask them, you are activating them and you are making those people on your teeter-totter balance out and you're making them feel like they own the company. Suddenly it's their company, it's their problem it's yeah. they, and they have to creatively solve it and you are just the one challenging them. I love it. It's so, you know, I, uh, I used to I tell people all the time to bring me into manage your group, you know, uh, CMO for six months, bring me in for something. I'm like, perfect. So how, how often do you talk to your employees and how do you talk to them? You know, uh, do they just willy-nilly talk to customers? Do you give them advice? And I was with this one group and it's like, uh, we monitor everything. And I said, okay, I'm going to leave then. I'm like, why? <laughs> it's because, man, your people don't have any freedom to be themselves. And if you want them to talk about your company, you want them to celebrate that they work for you, they've got to have some sort of fingerprint on here. That doesn't remove your fingerprint as the founder. It just adds their fingerprint to this beautiful mosaic that you're creating. And if they leave, they leave. Who cares? If anything, be proud of the people that have left because if they're going to a new company or starting something, it means you inspired them. And if you inspired them, you did something really, really awesome. And that's something you should be proud of. But uh, unfortunately, there is this, you know, this, this environment, this model that someone's going to steal the idea and, you know, they're going to, they're going to start talking to customers crazy or they're, you know, it's, your, it your biggest, your biggest problem is never a competitor uh, stealing your idea, never an employee stealing your idea. Your biggest threat is that you don't execute right. That's why most companies die. They almost... I tell people all the time, like, share your idea. Who cares? Because I'll tell people what I do and how I do it all the time. And I told a business partner of mine, I was talking to him, and I'm like, yes, we'll do it. He goes, Jay, that's someone taking old Greek and translating it into Latin. And you're just like, yeah, that's what I do. I go, because I don't care. I'll tell people, I'll give people the roadmap. You still don't have my brain. So you can see the road. It's like a race car driver. Put us both in the same car with the same speed, doing the same oval lap. In fact, put me in a faster car and I'll still lose. 
because they know how to navigate it better. They just do. Right. And, and it, that's why you have to get the people on board and yeah. motivate them that do know how to navigate, right? Yeah. And because that's what's going to end up winning. And it's a compounding effect. The more great people you have around you who have that skill level, have that ability, mm -hmm. the more they hire more people and the more you grow and the more unstoppable you are. But yeah, I, I tell people, put your idea out in the world. You don't even know if it works until you put it out there. And every mm -hmm. time you put it out there and you get feedback, you're learning something, which is, and it's the rate at which you're learning which will determine whether you're successful or not. And, and nothing's static. So you always have to be putting new stuff out there, right? New yeah. ideas and seeing what works and what doesn't, getting feedback constantly, changing your direction, changing your course, because that's how great businesses continue to grow. I couldn't agree more. It's, uh, you know, it's, I'm, we're, we're in this, uh, I'm in this office here in this group that brought me in, very nice people. And it's interesting because I'm seeing this convergence and I, and I like where it's going, right? So we went from the internet right, and startups and attacking, but it was, come find this. And then knowledge graphs came in. It's like, let me show you how to find this better. Kind of manipulated, obviously, but still there. And then it was, well, here's social media. Now I'm going to talk at you. I'm going to tell you something. And if you want to reply, you can, but I'm just going to kind of talk at you. And then we got into podcasting. And it's like, now you're a voyeur in long, short form, interesting conversation. You get to listen in. And this group, what they've done is they figured out a way in the technology. And I just want to get your take on this because I, I believe it could impact movies, television, podcasts, everything. They let you listen in on a conversation like a podcast, like I could air this podcast on their platform. Mm -hmm. And then they can, we can open it up or keep it closed. Everyone listening can answer, ask questions in real time. And then you and I can go back and answer those questions if we want to. But more importantly, I can see where someone asked a question and then like a Jackson Pollock painting, it didn't go vertical, it splattered. Mm -hmm. And I can see where it started a new conversation. Mm. And I go, Steve, there's three founders over here talking about what we talked about. You might want to jump in on this conversation and help them out. And so you've got this explosive level of engagement that hasn't been seen before, that hasn't that's really been really, executed. A, that's a really creative idea. Yeah, I think, and I'm like, and then and when I'm talking to him, I go, you guys, I don't think you understand two things, right? You're creating a platform for conversations where I'm not talking at you, I'm talking with you, mm -hmm. number one. Two, the world's most valuable thing right now is data. And the data you're pulling by understanding the ripple effects of throwing this rock into this pond is insurmountably wealthy. And now you have a great responsibility. How do you manage that? Right? How do you manage it and not manipulate it? How do you keep it going and not tear people down? And how do you, you know, keep it honest? Yeah. And how do you keep, make those conversations productive and don't yeah. allow trolls to disrupt or, you know, destroy, you know, destroy, you want to make it so that the conversations are valuable to the people participating in them. But also it sounds like it's a broadcast medium because people can go back and kind of navigate their way through this. Yep. You have to figure that out too. So yeah. that's another but big imagine, challenge. Imagine news agencies doing an yeah. A-B test. N new yeah. news. I put the show on. We see where everyone's asking the questions. Call the person back. Hey, guess what? We missed the mark and what people want to know. We're bringing right. it back on now, at six. Now, now we can, yeah. And then you get to look at the people and go, guess what? We listened. And what do people want to hear? I mean, this is where, and I don't want to get too far off on this tangent here. Uh, it's a hot topic, but, you know, people are talking about whether they love or hate Joe Rogan. And <laughs> 
Yes. I, had a, I, had, I had a friend tell me this, and and this is where I'm gonna I'm gonna drop it there. You can comment, or we can leave it alone. Yeah. It's up to you. Yeah. He listened to Joe Rogan's apology, and he's never listened to Joe Rogan. Doesn't like Joe Rogan. Doesn't think yeah. he's funny. Doesn't. He goes, but I understood why people like it. Honesty, humility, and not afraid to say that he's wrong. And those elements, when the mainstream media looks at things, when was the last time? Tucker Carlson or Brian Seltzer or anyone else came on and said, hey, last week I did a show and I told you X, Y, and Z, and it was wrong. And I just want to apologize. <laughs> they never say that. <laughs> they never do. That's when they're wondering why they're getting their ass handed to them and why people are like this guy. It's because it is the George W. Bush. It is the Ronald Reagan thing. If I could have a beer with this guy and I wouldn't feel intimidated. I'm not yes. starstruck by him. I'm engaged with him. Yes. So I think a key word is engagement. And mm -hmm. in today's world, in the media where it's shifting is engagement is a metric. Like I'm a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley now. So I look at all these different startups. We care about engagement. You're talking about your platform where people are asking questions that they, you know, the, the podcaster or the show didn't think to ask, they're getting feedback. And in the process, they're engaging their audience. Mm -hmm. uh, really, uh, it's not a one-way conversation anymore. Yeah. It's all two-way. And if we can take that to the next level, that's where the future of media lies. So I that's agree. exciting. I couldn't agree with you more. We're, um, I'm doing this, uh, launching this television show. And it's it's funny. I, I find how the, the, the difference is. And I'll explain the process to you and I like your take because mm -hmm. this is, we've got startups and entrepreneurs. And at the end of the day, right, you're searching for partners and money. And then you're searching for a resource. And I've always told people when I've worked with VCs, it's very simple. I appreciate the cash, but I don't care if you can't do anything for me. What's your Rolodex? What, how vested are you in me? Are you going to make a phone call for me? Mm -hmm. uh, do you, have you invested in other companies that could potentially partner with me or we could do a joint acquisition? Like, our, what, is our, what is our six, two-year, four-year roadmap, right? What does that look like? And so it's, we're doing this TV show and I've got distribution done, production done, talent mm -hmm. signed and done concept everyone agrees on now it's money right it's two million bucks for 12 episodes mm -hmm. and so it's it's and, and my problem is i don't know if i'm asking for enough money because there's that balance right it's like you're not asking for enough so i don't care i can write the check tomorrow but i'm not going to watch you spend the money because i don't care because it's not enough but if i ask for 100 million they're like dude you're not making a movie you're making 12 episodes like you don't need 100 million dollars and furthermore that's too much to ask from me because then I'm leveraging everything on one show and that's not equitable. So it's trying to find that right dollar figure to ask for. And then it's still, you know, Hollywood's Hollywood. And there's still the gatekeepers that be like, mm, but how do you want to do this? I'm like, oh, omni-channel, global. I want, you know, we're going to spin part of it off into a podcast. You've got to do television, but if you don't get television, I've got online distribution also set up. So online distribution works this way. And because of that, with uh, you know, pulling three minute, six minute clips and doing that and then getting enough from that to that YouTube will pay you for that. You can have six or seven revenue channels here easy. Yeah. And these guys are going, they're like, but are you going to be on TV? And I'm like, okay, well, let me go over it again. Right. And it's, and they're stuck in this old way of thinking. And then, you know, I'll talk to a VC who does online entertainment and he goes, it's too television. And then the ah. person will go, it's not television enough. And I'm like, you guys, you, we're at this, this space where they, they're going to kind of, very few people see new, if a, the more radical an idea is, mm -hmm. the, the more disruptive it is, the more people tend to reject it because it's out of their common frame of reference. Yeah. 
So human beings, and this, you have to understand this when pitching your ideas. I tell entrepreneurs this all the time. You know, people are pattern matchers. We succeed by, by recognizing patterns that work and then doing them again. So that works up into a point, but pattern matching is not innovation. So they're yeah. very different. So that's why most people, they can run a successful business, but you know, they just do the same thing over and over. That's most sure. people. And then there are people like you out there who are innovators who are saying, look, we don't have to do it the same way. This is like something different, like, but as soon as you do that, it doesn't, it doesn't fit with any of their patterns. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of them reject it out of hand. And as venture capitalists, like in Silicon Valley, we have to catch ourselves because naturally we're pattern matchers too. That's how human beings have been programmed. So mm -hmm. we, most people, they, they, most venture capitalists aren't actually that creative. What they tend to do is say, just show me the numbers. Like they want you as the entrepreneur to take the risk, to put it out there to, you know, you know, however you get that 2 million, they don't care. And then once they see it going on fire, that's when they jump in. Yeah. And the real hardest thing entrepreneurs ever do is raise that first capital yep. to prove the idea. The hardest thing. That's like the biggest hurdle there is. And it's, and it's weird how things differently align. Because you would think, like the rational brain would go, all right, you secure the money so that you can move forward. So the bills are getting paid. Like there's, this is a rational brain. The irrational brain of the world we live in is get everything done first. Don't worry about money. And then if it works and we see it work, We'll give you money. And at that yes. point, you're like, we'll give you money when you don't need it. See, this yes. is what investors are great at. They, what they want you to do is they want you to take all the risk, mm -hmm. you know, out of the equation, you know, put it all in. And then when they see it's a sure thing or they think it's a sure thing, they'll put in the money. Yeah. So, uh, but that's just also human nature. So you're, you're fighting against these two entrenched things, pattern matching, like mm -hmm. you're doing something different and I don't want to give you something until you prove it works. And it's weird. It doesn't matter if you've got a successful person, like the, the guy, I'm, one of two of the people I'm working with, they both have had multiple successful television shows on different networks. And they're like, yeah, but they've never done it together. And they've never done on. They channel. can always poke a hole in it. <laughs> yeah. Always. There's always something you can poke a hole in. So this what I'm going to give you my advice. And I Please. give this in my book, Surviving a Startup. To how to oh, there we go. Right. And they can find that book. Amazon. Surviving a startup, it's anyway. uh, yeah, it's on Amazon. It's published by HarperCollins. It's everywhere. Beautiful. It's also just go to survivingastartup.com. You can Perfect. find it. Yes. But um, here's some of the advice I give, and I've gone through this myself. Like my okay. first, my first company, I literally spent an entire year trying to raise capital and failing <laughs> until I learned these lessons. And I, okay. I'm, you want to hear the story? I'll tell you the story. Please, I want to hear the story. Okay, Tom, brother, come on. Okay. People want to hear the story. Okay. So this is my story, not The Shining, but my story. So my, my first uh, startup uh, that was venture funded, not bootstrapped, I uh, got together with four friends. We had this massively multiplayer gaming system. We went out there with it and we made a couple mistakes. Our first mistake was we had a great technology. It was brand new at the time. This was the early days of multiplayer gaming. There just weren't, there are hardly any multiplayer games. Only EverQuest was the only really popular one. Okay. We w went out there with the technology in search of a problem. So what we decided was that instead of building a game, which is very risky, we were going to build a platform and get all the game developers on there. 
and it seems like a great idea. Like we Isn't were at the Roblox. I mean, that's like Roblox. That's day, like Roblox. It? That's like all these great things, Steam and all these yeah. other ones. But um, we were early. And the problem was when we went to game developers at that point in time, which is like the 90s, like they looked at us and they, first of all, most of them said, oh, single player games are fine, right? That's where we're making our money. We don't need multiplayer. Nobody needs multiplayer. Secondly, if they wanted to try multiplayer, they're like, e either I'll build it myself. I don't like to use anything. I don't like to rely on anybody else because that's how they'd always done it. Sure. Or they were like, I'll do it, but I'll give you a tiny bit of revenue share, just a tiny bit. And we were bootstrapping this like you are right mm -hmm. now. Yeah. And we were like, oh my God, we can't afford that. <laughs> like, so literally within a, a couple months, we found that that wouldn't work. That strategy wouldn't work. So then we had this great technology with no, uh, no customers. So we, we just started to cast about. And we heard through the grapevine that MTV wanted to create the first interactive television show that had an online, massively multiplayer online uh, program synced with a TV broadcast. It was called Web Riot. And we literally started calling MTV, like just like nonstop, like how do you get money? Like this is our, 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 we're like calling the senior vice president of interactive saying, we got your technology. Now we were this unknown startup and this is back in the nineties and big corporations like MTV didn't work with startups. Like yeah, it wasn't that was a, not thing. a thing. <laughs> it wasn't in the early nineties. Like people just didn't even, you know, uh, the internet was new. They didn't trust this stuff, but they wanted to do this thing. Um, and they ignored us. They never called us back. <laughs> but my friend, my partner got invited to speak at CES because of her previous job. And she was on a panel and she just started talking about what we were doing. Like you said, don't hide your idea. She just started yeah. saying, we have this massively multiplayer gaming system and we're going to synchronize it to television and we're going to do all this stuff, right? After her talk, this guy comes running up through the audience, pushing through everybody. And he looks her in the eye and he says, I've got to talk to you. And he goes, you have exactly what we need. I am the senior vice president of MTV. And she looked back at him and she says, I know, I've been leaving voicemails for you. <laughs> For the past several weeks, With, within two weeks later, we had a deal done. We had $350,000 in the bank. So that was our initial funding, right? Mm -hmm. Going to a corporation, talking it up, putting our idea out there. You know, it was a room full of TV executives that, uh, so and TV people. So one, it only took one of them to respond and it happened to be the one that we were going after. So <laughs> we, we got a deal done because they had nobody else who could give them the technology. It's sure. that simple. And because we were on stage, it lended, lended credibility to us, even though, you know, she got invited because of her previous work. <laughs> they didn't know that. Doesn't matter. Yeah. So the next thing we need to do is raise capital because $350,000 sounds like a lot, but as you know, it's not a lot, especially to build out something totally new, like this new technology. We had to sync it. We had to synchronize it in a frame accurate way to television broadcasts, because wow. if it was, if the TV broadcast was literally, you know, half a second too soon, you could see the answer on TV before it was online and you could cheat. So it wouldn't work. It had to be perfectly synchronized. Wow. And then um, how'd you do time zones? We had to do time zones too. Oh my God. So we had to run it in different time zones. All these headaches we had never anticipated. We just had, to, we said we could do it, but all we really had was the engine for the massively multiplayer part. We knew nothing about the television broadcast portion. What? So we, we, we had to figure, and we had to put the results in real time back on air 
you know, it live. So when people are watching it, their score would appear on the TV show, all the oh, stuff. Oh, that instant credibility feel. Yeah. That, oh. and, and they were like, look, we're going to launch in less than nine months. Can you guys get this done? And we were like, absolutely. <laughs> because honestly, if we said no, we wouldn't, we would not have a job, right? Sure. <laughs> we wouldn't have a company. So he said, absolutely. So we were working like crazy. We had like, we had three engineers and, and, and a, a couple, a designer and a graphic artist. And, and we were just going like crazy on it. it. And it was my job to go out and raise money uh, to get us the money we need to keep going. So I was going uh, uh, like crazy trying to get through to VCs. Now in these days, there weren't incubators and accelerators. You know, there were hardly anything. Uh, I wasn't plugged in to the venture capital community. I didn't know anybody. So I was just, I made some really critical mistakes. So the first thing I did is I found one investor who said he would invest and he didn't invest, but he was always really interested. So he kept coming back for more and more information. And like, he would just ask for, uh, can you give me this spreadsheet? Can you give me that spreadsheet? What do you think your revenue will be in five years? Millions of questions that I just kept giving him stuff and spending huge amount of iterations on it. And you know what? He never ever invested. So I have a rule. And the first rule that hit me was if, if somebody does not invest mm -hmm. with after three pitches to that same person, never talk to them again. <laughs> you are wasting your time because every investor I know that's serious, like if you've, if you've gone in there, you've answered all their questions, you've given everything they need, they will make a decision. They will either invest or not invest. And it only wastes your time and gives you false hope to keep uh, engaging with the same investor. I, I look at investors as frogs. Like every investor is a frog. And you as the entrepreneur, are hoping that that frog turns into your Prince Charming when you kiss it and carries you away, makes all your dreams come true. Sure. Well, if you've kissed the same frog three times, it's a frog. It's, frog. <laughs> it's, it's never going to be Prince Charming. I like so this that. Was, so this is one thing, like just walk away from investors, cross them off your list, like literally do that. The next thing we did was we got another investor. This is a big Hollywood uh, investment firm. It was like, the senior vice president of Universal was the founder. They had Michael Milken. He was on the board. All these luminaries, all these Hollywood big shots. You know, they pulled together. I won't say the name of the firm because what I'm about to tell you, but they had pulled together all these big shots. We went in there, we pitched them, they got it. And they said they would invest $5 million. You know, and we commanded a pretty high valuation because we had closed a deal with MTV and Viacom. That was a big deal, right? Yeah. And it was about to go on air. So we, you know, we set a 15 pre 20 post, which in those days was super high. Um, so, but they said, yes. So we spent our hard earned money, 60 K on legal documents, worked out everything with them, all the details, got it all done. And when we were all done, you know, we didn't have much money. Yeah. <laughs> they turned around to us and they said, you know what? your launch date is only a couple months away. We just want to wait and see if it launches. You imagine this, right? We'd wasted all this time, all this thing. We felt like, what can we say? Okay. <laughs> you, yeah. well, you know, you're not going to give us the money, but you said you'd give us the money, but okay. Um, 
So we go by and right now we're just frantic to get the thing working on live. And so everything's riding on our watch, everything, the VC funding, everything. So MTV is breathing down our neck. They're kind of halfway regretting that they signed us on because they're like, you know, they don't trust us. <laughs> they're, like, they're like, TV never crashes. TV doesn't crash. <laughs> we're like, we're like oh, we understand. But in these days, there was no AWS, no cloud, no, no software to load balance, to test the load balancing, to see if they threw a ton of traffic out of the work. We were just winging it. We like at this oh, co-location facility, we put the servers in there ourselves, hooked them up to a T1 line. We didn't know. And they're about to, and meanwhile, during this two month period, MTV every single day is saying Web Riot, our show every day, come Web Riot. It's going to launch the first interactive big TV show, oh. going to launch every day, go to this web, you know. So we're like getting really, really scared, but there's nothing. We feel, you know, we have, we have to launch this thing. Everything's riding on it. Our engineering team of three people is working day and night to make this happen. And we put it up there, launch date comes. We, you know, before it goes live, we, the people just start streaming in like massive numbers of people like we'd never seen before. Our server's up there. And then all of a sudden, it goes down, oh. our server crashes. A moment later, this phone rings. MTV. It is a senior vice president of MTV, as you could have guessed. Oh. And he is cursing me with every four letter word you could imagine. Why is the blank, 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 blank down? I told you, <laughs> he's worried he's, he's fired. Oh. Um, I was like, hold on, let me call my engineers. We're gonna figure this out. So I get on the phone to my engineers and like, I'm dying. I'm having a little heart attack, like, and I'm on the phone and I'm telling, and I'm saying to them, why are the servers down? You know, the show hasn't gone live yet. It's like, we're just, but everybody's streaming in there and now they can't get in. He looks at me, well, he doesn't look at me. He's on the phone. He, he basically pauses and he says, uh, you know what? We're being hacked. It's a denial of service attack. They, somebody heard about all the pre-publicity and they've come after us. And he goes, we're trying to manually block the IP addresses because they had no Cloudflare or any of these firewalls like that we have today. He yeah, was I like manually the first block one was uh, SRI's uh, security portal. Yeah. The so first, we, yeah. These guys, our guys, like we're just manually blocking IP addresses. And, and, and I was like, oh my God. And then, you know what? A couple minutes later, boom, it's online before it goes live. It's online again. They blocked the denial of service act, ran flawlessly. The show ran perfectly. It ran the next episode ran perfectly. And the next episode ran. It was just going. Then the, the apology gift basket you got from MTV was really nice. It was no, no gift basket. Sorry. <laughs> Those are the things of your dreams. They they were just like, you better be damn well happy it ran, you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they were just, you know, they're the kings. We're we're their minions. Um, so what we uh, what we go back to the VCs, right? When it yeah. runs perfectly, we're like, it was a huge hit, bigger than anybody expected. We have like a million users signed up now. And that was in those days, like enormous number, mm -hmm. like out of the gate, like even today you'd be happy. Oh, so, yeah. and that this was the early days of the internet. And we are like, you know, you guys got to fund us. And they were like, and I go, we need the money. Like we were like totally out of money. Like no money at all, like spent everything because, you know, it's expensive to do that. Yeah. They, uh, they came back to us and they said, okay, we'll fund you. You did it. 
but you know what? We thought about your valuation and it was high. So we would, we're going to fund you, but we're going to do it at half the valuation we promise. Ouch. Talk about Hollywood sharks. <laughs> You're dealing with them now. Hollywood sharks, they saw an opportunity. They saw we were backed into a corner and we needed their money. So like we had no choice. Like either we could take the money at half the valuation from these, these guys, or we could walk out the door and fall off a cliff. <laughs> because we had no money. And they're like, and here's the door to your left. And the cliff is just two more steps. Right. And, or you take our check. At, at, and we get a good deal. So Steve, real quick, in this process and everything that's going on as a leader, how A, do you keep your spirits up? And then B, in keeping your spirits up, how are you keeping the spirits up? And by the way, our girl, did she stop at Costco? Like they've got these tents in, in the shining. This is pre-Costco and I can't believe like she's like, I'm just holding with two hands trying to pour it in this bowl. And it just, yeah, it's the kitchen, the industrial kitchen. For the this industrial, huge and I don't hotel. know what the, and you the know, safe is in the back there. And I have to say, there's little things in this movie. There's so many uh, Easter eggs. Like in the in that kitchen scene, there's pornography on the wall. Yes. But she totally ignores it. And in you know the scenes where he's on his big wheel going through mm -hmm. the carpet, like those scenes were the first ones ever shot at a low angle with a, a, a steady cam following, uh, you know, on a dolly following the. I, no, it's not on a dolly. They had to run after this. It's they like absolutely. Walk it, right? With yeah, the, they had to walk right after the big. Nobody had ever used steady cams in a movie like that. Like the opening shot when he comes into the hotel, it's all one shot on a steady cam. He, Kubrick was so innovative in this film. So talking about innovation, he was constantly innovating. He's a wizard that that has a ten year plan that starts in all these different movies that links back up together 10, 20 years later, and you get to build forwards and backwards consistently. It is right. It, it, it's a, a massive network of, of insight that. I can't believe I'd, I'd like to dissect his brain that way, right? Yeah, and there's no detail in this film that wasn't intentional. Yes. So like, and you'll look in certain scenes and there'll be a chair and the chair will be missing in other scenes. Yeah. And why? It, that's telling you something. That's that's not like a, 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 a mistake, a continuity mistake. Wasn't, that's that, wasn't that like an, an actual thing to get you unnerved? Like things always look subtly familiar, but it's off. There's something always just a hair off. Yes, he would manipulate things like that so that your conscious mind might not notice it, but your mm -hmm. subconscious mind would yep. notice it. And, and you just get that little. Yeah, that little uneasy feeling. Mm -hmm. So he, he did that throughout the film and there's things on the wall. There's like iconographic artwork, you know, for, for, for that represents different things. You can watch this film a hundred times and see different things every time. That's why True. I love this film. Like it's truly one of the few movies that like you could get immense joy the, the more times you watch it. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. There's, there's parts of me that want to go back through this movie and count the candlesticks up top and make sure they're still legit. Right. I mean, it's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's it's honestly true and it, and there's so many layers like there's the hotel is a maze and they refer to it as a maze and there's a maze in the backyard and they're navigating the maze and jack nicholson is like a minotaur like you know hunting down to kill and and then there's this whole theory of the film which is probably actually right that jack nicholson abused his son he was uh, yes. molested his son and that all plays throughout the film on many many different levels with the pornography in the kitchen the the woman in the bathtub and you know and then the and way he calls him over when he's like come here and he's you know the kids are just like like uh. yeah and he's really creepy so it's much yeah. creepier on many more levels than just a typical horror film. Like it's not just about a guy with an ax hacking through a door, here's Johnny, which is a great improvised line. Mm -hmm. It is about 
it is, it, it, it is like, you know, all the psychology of the son and the wife and the abuse and all these other things tying into the history of the hotel, just absolutely an amazing film. It is. It's, you know, and so, so back to it real quick, and then I want to, yeah. I'm going to wrap yeah. this back into what your yeah. startups and, yeah. and this movie, but yeah. how do you keep your spirits up? I mean, yeah. when so you're how getting kicked, it... yeah, I mean, because like I sit yeah. here, right? yeah. so I, I have that fun job like you do, right? Fundraising. Yeah. How do you get the money in? Who do you do? And, and you might know 20 people with, you know, millions of dollars. And they're like, oh, just go ask them. Like, first of all, I don't ask my friends for money. That's just not what I do. That's not the world I live in. And two, I want, there's a part of me, my dumb brain that goes, can you convince someone that doesn't know who you are of your idea and then have them buy it? Like, it's easy to have your friends go, this is great. I love you for it. Yeah, yeah, you can't it's count on your friends. Yeah, it's yeah, hard to have a stranger though. I like it so much. I'm gonna give you money, son. Yeah, and I'm gonna risk everything on this. Yeah, I'm gonna risk because a lot of times we, you got to understand the psychology of VC. They, it's, this is true, and I write about it in depth in my book. When you're pitching a VC, you're not pitching an you're you're pitching an individual who has their own insecurities. Yep. So in Silicon Valley, VCs work as firms, and every partner in a firm they will champion a deal, but okay. if the deal goes south so does their reputation. So it's uh -huh. not about them losing the money as much as it is, they don't care because a lot of it's not even their money. A lot of the times it's other people's money that they gave them. They care about their reputation. And especially in the old boys club, all the people talk and they talk behind your back. Like, so when a VC is scared of investing in your deal, you have to understand that they're scared that it's gonna ruin their career. It's gonna, you know, it's gonna reflect badly on them. And if it's an angel investor, you usually don't have that fear. Angel investors are usually more fear, fearful about their money okay? Okay. because it's their money. So, so you have to understand the, the psychology of whoever you're pitching. And a lot of times people think getting a, a partner in the VC firm is better than getting an associate to champion your deal. And I will tell you that the opposite is actually true. I see more deals closed because the founder didn't pitch the partner. They actually went and pitched the junior associate who's just out of Harvard or wherever they, you know, whatever Ivy League school they hired out of, that's what they do. And uh, the junior one's trying to make their name. And the junior one doesn't have a reputation to defend. They, it's, for them, it's like just a new thing. They don't understand it. Like, and they will go to bat for companies they believe in all the way, whereas the partner will always hedge their bets and always be easily swayed out of the deal by other partners. Whereas an associate will go around champion if they love it. So I tell people, focus on the associates. Don't focus on the partners. You're like, unless it's a partner that, that is so confident that they just don't care. Like yeah. there are people out there like uh, Tim Draper. I know Tim, he is like, he'll just place bets on everything. He does. He, he, he's one of these people uh, who's like, he's, he's fearless. Like he'll just go and do it. He doesn't care about his reputation. He's already made his name. That's his nature. But there's other ones about there who, who are actually equally famous who are much more insecure. <laughs> so, yeah, and it's wild because you're talking about patterns and stuff. And it's it's so true. And it's yeah. just it's fascinating to me, right? You live in a world of gambling, essentially. Yes. Like legit, you're gambling on technology, you're gambling on people, you're you're gambling on supply chain. There's a lot more to gamble on than going to Vegas, obviously. Oh yeah. But the wins are higher, the losses are bigger. And it's 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 still it fascinates me all the time because you know, you see these VCs going, I, it's, it's like movies. They won't make a new movie, but they'll remake The Shining. Oh yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah. When, when it should never be remade. 
should never be remade. No, they, they did that miniseries remaking Rosemary's Baby. And I was just yes. like, guys. Another one that should never be remade. Stop your nonsense. And, they, and, and people are clamoring and begging for new content. Begging for it. Oh, well, like, yeah. We, yeah. We, we what want... if I give you all this old tech? What but it's a sure this? bet. It's pattern matching, yeah. right? They're going for the sure bet because they don't want their, they want to make, they're too afraid. They're afraid. They, they want to make money. They want to make their reputation. So right. they, want, um, they want something that's a sure bet, that's patterned recognition at the same time. You read their website and they're like, if you're not changing the world, if you're not bringing something Yeah, that's totally just bullshit. Different, that yeah. you, can't, you can't. So it really, a lot of it comes down, I say, to finding the right people. So you talked about keeping morale up when things yeah. are down. Well, in this case, all of us were fully invested. We're, we're like just partners. We had no time uh, to, th it was do or die. So okay. in this particular case, and sometimes it isn't this way, but in this, at this time, it was just like do or die. And so all of us, like we were so focused on just getting that product launch, but now it comes down to a really critical point where, you know, I have a decision to make, like, do I walk out of the, the, the door and say, screw you guys, you, you know, you screwed us over. Yeah. I don't want you as my, or do I just take their money and we, we roll with it? You know what? We decided, I went back to my team, I didn't make this decision by myself. And we talked it through and we said, we don't want them as our partners. These guys are sleazy. Like anybody who would do that to us, do what are they gonna do next? True. So we just said, screw you. And we walked. And you it did the, felt- You did the first cartman. Screw it, you guys, it, I'm going home. <laughs> it felt so good to walk out that door until oh. we were outside. <laughs> because then we had no money. Like, we're dying. Hey we guys, just, should we go get everyone? We can't afford coffee. Can we just stand here on the street corner and talk about this? <laughs> yes. I had to beg my employees to, to keep working for free. You know, like we're going to make this, we got this deal with MTV. We just have no money. We had to beg our, our, our co-location provider, you know, don't shut us off. We just wow. need a couple. Now to make it harder. It was right before Christmas. Like it was between, you know, just after Thanksgiving, they knew oh. nobody, everybody after between Thanksgiving and mid January when CES Done. ends, nobody funds anything like yeah. nothing gets funded. Yeah. So they were like, they thought we would, we'd have to say yes. And when we said no, they were shocked. And uh, we were shocked too, because we literally had no, you know, all the VCs were shutting down. And I tell you, we went, we were like, that was the most brutal holiday season I've ever had. Like it was so depressing. Like I just kept pounding on doors because what do you do? Like you yeah. just keep pounding on doors. Like, and, and I actually managed to get through to this company, this big company, it wasn't a VC, but it was the president of this big company. And it was called Macromedia. It is now Adobe. So people know it as Adobe. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and they had just released their new product flash. And at the mm. time, uh, so I went in and met with the president. He heard about our MTV deal. I met with him and I was like, he had one question for me. Can you make this work with flash? And I looked at him and said, absolutely. Now I didn't know we could. <laughs> I was like, absolutely. Give us the money. We will figure out how to make this work with flash. And you know what? Um, I said, and, and, I, and he said, great. Okay. We'll fund you. And I go, great. Write me the check. And he turned to me and he said, we can't lead around. It's against our corporate policy. We can only follow. And this is another rule. Followers do you no good, almost, except 
if they can introduce you to other venture fact venture capitalists who can lead around. So I turned back to him and I said, well, then you have to introduce us to the lead. You aren't following unless you can introduce us to the lead investor. And he said, okay, as soon as CES is over, <laughs> which is still a ways away. Like TikTok, I will, TikTok. <laughs> yeah, I will introduce you. And that was the best I could get. Like, so we went back to CES the next year because we had already bought our tickets and everything mm-hmm. and booked our flights, but we downgraded to the sleaziest hotel in Las Vegas. Like it was a pit <laughs> because that's oh. all we could. And we were so depressed, we could hardly get out of bed and attend the show. It was that bad. That's, that's how down, you know, we were literally, my partner and I, we were just so depressed. Like we were, because our company was dying. And, and if it got pulled from MTV, MTV would freak out because we couldn't pay the bills, but we'd already, you know, it was just really, really bad. And we couldn't go back to them for more money because we'd already signed the deal. We um, survived that. Then the day came when uh, we were still like running on total fumes at this point where, uh, and you know, it takes a while to get funded. Even after they say yes, the legal contracts, all these things take time. So I didn't know what we were going to do, but I had to just keep trying. So the president of Macromedia, which is now Adobe, took me into one of the top VCs on Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley, one of the top VCs. We sit down with their managing director and he comes to the pitch. And I'm like, don't you have better things to do? You're the president of this big company. Don't you, why are you here? And the, the president of Macromedia, he basically said, I figured, he didn't tell me why. He just said, I want to see you pitch. What I figured out was he wanted to see how the VC reacted. Because if this VC reacted negatively, he wasn't going to put his reputation on the line. He wasn't going to introduce me to anybody else. So he wanted to see firsthand the holes that were poked in in our business. Now I go into this pitch. Everything's on the line again, like talking about stress. Because I know, you know, Macromedia is going to walk away if this pitch doesn't work. And we're just, we're dead. Like we Mm -hmm. literally, I had nobody else. So I'd made a bunch of mistakes along the way. First mistake was wasting a lot of time with that early investor who never invested, who was on the fence. Like just, there's a rule when somebody's on the fence, push them off. And I, <laughs> I like that. I like you know, that a lot. Like if you get people who won't give you a yes or a no, push mm-hmm. for a no. Like okay. just push, just say, look, I don't think you want this deal. Like <laughs> we're walking, like you just tell them. And then honestly, that will get them to say yes more than anything else you could ever do. And if they don't say yes at that point, you know, nobody likes to be pushed out of a deal. Like they yeah. want the deal. You want the girl that got away, like mm-hmm. who doesn't need you. So Pushing for a no, really key advice. Next thing is the first red flag you get, walk away. So remember when that VC said, we want to wait till you launch? Yeah. That was it. We should have walked. We should have said, no, you invest the money. You, as the entrepreneur, have to take control of the deal. You cannot let the VC or your investors or the studio heads drive the deal. You have to set the timeline. You have to set the terms. We should have told them at that time, you invest at our valuation, you invest now, or we're not talking to you again. First of all, that wouldn't have given us the, ho- the false hope. I would have been out there fundraising during that time. Sure. And I may have closed a deal because we had MTV. Yeah. Um, instead, I put all my eggs in that one basket. And when the first red flag came up, you need multiple parties in a deal. You need competition. Mm-hmm. Like you don't get somebody to, in- investors invest for two reasons. I learned this. They invest, uh, uh, number one, they, they invest because they think it's a big thing that will make their, res- uh, their reputation. Number two, they're, fear of losing the deal has to be greater than their fear of losing their money or their reputation. That's the balance you're striking with any investor. So you have to strike fear in their heart. 
And the fear is that you'll walk away and they'll miss out on the deal of a lifetime. That's the only leverage you have. So we should have just pushed them right there and we would have seen their true colors and we could have Mm -hmm. walked away or we would have had the money in the bank. Now, the, the, so I'm in this pitch with this guy. And the, the other thing you don't do is tell them that you're all out of money. <laughs> because They're not called vulture capitalists for no reason. They're, they're called vulture capitalists because they squeeze the blood out of you, right? Yeah. So I'm in this pitch. And I'm not going to tell them we're out of money. I'm, you know, I didn't tell, I don't mention that. Now, if they ask, I, I'm always honest. I never lie, but they don't ask. Like they know startups need money, but I, I just, I don't say we're running on fumes. We're desperate, never ask desperate. So I'm in this pitch. I'm telling them about the MTV deal. I'm telling them how great it went. I tell them all this stuff. And, you know, I pitch my heart out. Like I just go all in on this pitch. And I finish that pitch and I look into that venture capitalist eyes. And you know what I see? I see nothing. He's blank. He's a blank face. And he, he goes, excuse me for a minute, gets up and walks out of the room. Like, Oh, I look at the the president of macromedia. I'm like, what just happened? He doesn't know. He shrugs his shoulder. Yes. I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, I blew it. Like it's all done. A minute later, a couple minutes later, actually takes like 10 minutes. He comes back into the room and he looks at me and he sets down a piece of paper. And he goes, here's your term sheet. I'm like, what? Term sheet? The first pitch? Like I just pitched you. Like I've had to pitch people over and over and over and over again. And they never say yes. And you're giving it to like just the first pitch, no questions, nothing. Dude. And I'm like, what did I do differently? What did I do this time that I didn't do before? Sure. And I thought about it and I knew what I did. I it clicked in my brain. I mentioned. You see, you know, Macromedia that just introduced me to you, they, I mentioned just casually, not, not, and I just mentioned, uh, you know, the, you're the first VC they've introduced us to. They're going to introduce us to some other ones. He didn't want to let me leave the room. His fear of losing the deal was greater than his fear of losing his money. He didn't want, he knew if I walked out of that room, Macromedia was going to introduce me to more VCs. They were right there in the room. He knew that. So he literally gave me the term sheet right then. Wow. So I've got, so we've got a call and I can't mention the person's name. Big, big Hollywood person. Yeah. Has 30 successful shows on NBC, CBS and Fox over the last decade. I mean, that big deal. And I had a friend reach out. I don't know any of these people. I just got stuck in this position. They're like, hey, raise money. I was like, yeah, sure. I can probably do it. I'll figure it out. I mean, I just created a magazine for the first time. By the way, I got to message me your uh, your email address or your mailing address. I'll send you a, a copy of this new magazine that I created. Very fun. But I, you know, I'm like, yeah, I'll figure it out. And so I, I'm just, I'm running it at brick walls and people are like, oh, you got to shoot the whole thing first and they buy it from you. I'm not doing that. Like, well, you know, drop a couple hundred thousand dollars into a sizzle reel. I'm like, I'm not doing that shit either. You guys stop. Like, I have all these things. So I messaged a friend and I said, hey, it's just over text. I said, hey, listen, I'm doing this. Do you know anyone that invests in TV shows? Like, you just will this like, well, just look at the concept, understands the market, understands what I'm trying to do, which is crazy. And then we'll just be like, all right, you check. And she's like, hold on. Like, that's all I get for the text back. Hold on. Can you tell me about the show? I'm like, shit, I don't care. I'll tell you about the show. So it's, it's a three-part series. It's three parts. It's very simple. You take an expert in their field. Like one of my good friends is Richard Turner. I don't know if you know who Richard Turner is. A fascinating person. 
So he's the number one card mechanic in the world. So he's not a magician. He's a mechanic. He fixes card games. Mm-hmm. He's also blind. Amazing. No braille cards, no wizardry. And he does this trick and he did it for a friend of mine and I were at his house, we're hanging out. I'm like, you just, I know it's not a dog and pony show. You're a person, but you never don't have playing cards in your hand. So come on, show me something. He goes, all right, let's do this game. Pulls out a deck, shuffles it, hands me the deck. Jason, will you cut the deck? So I cut the deck. He goes, what do you see? I go, I got a queen of spades. Great. He hand me the deck and he hands the deck to uh, the reporter. He goes, shuffle those cards. And he shuffles and guy's like, you don't shuffle very well. It's like, for a blind guy, you sure know how people should shuffle. And he goes, I can hear it. It's horrible. <laughs> and he goes, now, how many people are at the table? And I go, there's five. I'm in the number one seat. Reporter's the number five seat. He goes, all right, perfect. He goes, Jason, what would you like? I'm like, I'll take a royal flush. He goes, okay. Deals, one set. Hands the reporter the cards. He shuffles them. Hands me the cards. I cut them. Deals again. Delivers me a royal flush in spades. And no one else on the table has a hand that's even playable. It's even play. I mean, this guy's, he's a wizard, he's an expert. So I'm like, this is the expert, right? So we spend some time with the expert. Then we go in with the chef, Michelin star rated, celebrity chef. And then he does a meal, but from your childhood or something that's close to your heart that invokes conversation that, uh, you know, that, that warms you up a little bit. And then you go to the dinner table and then you've got, I've got our comedian there and you've got the chef there and you've got the great wine, whatever you have. And then you've got this you know, hour, two hour long conversation, these multiple meals coming out, you know, just got all this stuff, the food, the, the, the dinner conversation. And then that's your, obviously your podcast. It's also a part of the show. You take the highlights from it, boom, and you do all that. And so you know, we've got, you've got all these different moving parts, but it's all focused on expertise of the different people, the expert of the person that we're inviting, the expert of the chef, the expert of the comic leading conversation and making things enjoyable. And it's a celebration of the person throughout the whole thing while we're all sharing our talents. And I go, so there you go, there it is. And she's like, okay, and then that's it. And then I get an email and it goes, introducing me, introducing me. And I was like, to who? And she's like, here you go, here's your person. And the guy's like, yeah, I'll listen to him. I'll talk to him. And then it goes from, I call the team and I go, hey, we got this, I'm gonna set up a call, when are your dates available, blah, blah, blah. Thursday morning, we have a call with him. And my buddy calls me, the chef calls me, he goes, he's following me on social media now. Mm-hmm. The comedian calls me, he's following me on social media now. I'm like, well, he's not following me. I'm pissed now. <laughs> Call this guy. But the other thing that I did, and I think this chimes in true, I'm not saying we're going to get the deal out of this anyway. He's like, you know, who are you talking about? I'm talking to a lot of people. Obviously, you know, I reach out to the highly influential people that I know that have access to people like yourself. Because I don't care if you write me a check, but you're an expert in your industry. Mm-hmm. So at the very least, you're going to ask me hard questions because I want to mm. spend your money. And it's super easy for me to spend your money, right? It's just this, because it's not my money. It's mm-hmm. your money. I just have to have a fiduciary responsibility to account for the dimes and the nickels and the pennies that come out. So I chat with him a little, you know, so we've got this call. And he's like, well, it's going to be, at first, it's, it's a 10-minute call. That's fine. This, I don't have any time for this. I have 10 shows in pre-production. We don't have a contract. You can't give me a lot of details about your show because I don't want any shenanigans going on where you guys could sue me five years down the road to see mm. a TV show. That's, I don't care. Now it's a 30-minute call. Go from a 10-minute 10 10 minute phone call to a 30-minute Zoom. Mm. And my guys are getting amped. 
And I have gone down this road too many times. I'm like you, right? Yeah, I know. I know. You don't want to be amped like at that point. And so I'm like, well, guys, we just have the calm. Like we can't really talk about a lot because we don't have a calm. We don't have anything with it. And TV is a little different than tech. So, you know, we'll just go with it. We'll just have some fun. And these guys are like, we could do this. Like, you guys, I really don't care. That's the thing. You guys, we can't care right now. We can't. Because if we, if we do and we get invested on this is the only person that can fund us or this technology platform is the only one that can give us money to make this, then we're, we don't have a successful show. Then yes. we don't have a successful concept. Mm. Then we can't go. We can't evolve. We can't grow. I said, the only thing we cannot do is if he gives us an idea that evolves, that makes, don't shoot it down. Just say, thank you. That's really, really <laughs> yeah. interesting. Yes. Not, that's not where I want to go with this. Right. You can be a dick if you want to, I guess. I'm just but nobody dick. wants to work with a dick. No, no one does. They want to work with fun people. Yeah, they, they, you know, for them, uh, for people, especially with a lot of money, uh, they want to feel like they're part of it. They want yeah. to feel like they're one of your partners. They want to contribute. Yep. I, I always tell the best thing you can do is get the VC giving you ideas. Like yes. if they, if whoever you want to invest is giving you ideas, what they're doing is they're taking mental ownership of your of what you're doing now you yeah just nod your head you can always come back and, and work with them and you know uh, figure out what is the best idea later but mm-hmm. the fact that they're asking a lot of questions is awesome like yeah. because then they're totally engaged like if it's just you pitching them that's the most dangerous time because <laughs> that's when you're like that's when you you uh they're not invested they could be tuning out yeah and it's one of those things where i look at like well what if they say we have to shoot all 12 episodes of tasmania like well how much money are you giving me son like you, you guys, you're, you're focused on things that we don't need to be focused on. Yes. You're focused on nuances and what it could have should us. We don't have a check yet. How about we just focus on the best idea, the best concept, the best delivery mechanism possible. Mm-hmm. And then the money, the, the money will come or it won't. Right. Yeah. But don't sacrifice quality. Don't sacrifice content. Don't, don't sacrifice to your point, yourself and your integrity for a couple of bucks or the idea of getting a couple of bucks more. But I see more people sell themselves out on the concept that they might get money. Yes. Like, I'm going to tell this person whatever. It's not about getting money from them. It's not about the terms. It's about getting them interested in what you're doing. And you do that by uh, getting a dialogue going between you. Like, not a sales pitch. (laughs) I sat down with this one VC group. We were talking to them. Yeah. And they're like, all right, you know, put the screen down. Hey, Nancy, yeah. can you pull the screen down? I said, hold on, stop. Yeah. How many uh, pitch decks have you seen this week? 50, yeah, right. 60? And the guy's like, mm-hmm. And they totally glaze over when they're yeah. there. I said, I don't know. And I said, can we just go to the questions? And yeah. the guy's like, I'm sorry, what? I got to, <laughs> I, time's the one thing we don't get back. Yeah. I don't want to waste yours. You don't yeah. want to waste mine. What are your questions? And they're like, this. And they rolled out some questions. We answered them. Like, great, here's check. And it was the same thing. It's just because. Yeah. You, when you're answering people's questions, also, they pay much more attention. Think about it when you're in a conversation. If you ask the question, you're, you're listening for the answer. Yeah. If you didn't ask, you're like, you could be just be glazing over on their market size chart or whatever they're, they're focused oh, on. It's just that the you Excel already, spreadsheet. Yeah. The, you already know all the answers to anyway. It's, it's, a, it's a wild thing. You know, as, we're, as, we're, as you know, Jack's imagining or not, this, this pseudo psychological break that he's having right yeah right now with he's in the bar yeah the bartender just poured him the drink and he's he's had this and you know i see this break like the way i see startups focused on an idea unwilling to bend unwilling to move 
holding on to this hierarchy of, but if you can just do it my exact way, everything will be perfect. Yeah. And, and I also see this scene very much as it's doing a deal with the devil. Yeah. This is where he basically says he will sell his soul <laughs> to, uh, to the devil, who is the bartender. And, you know, when you're with VCs and you're with investors, you do not want to sell your soul. No. You, yes. So remember, you're interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. And that's why a dialogue is also really important because it can help you get to know them. Yeah. And can you like, call them? Like, is, is this yeah. a person who, who writes a check and then they're like, leave me alone until it's the quarterly update? Or yeah. is this a person you can text and say, hey, I'm trying to get a hold of this person or I need access to this. Can you help me? And, and, and also, are they a dick? Yeah. <laughs> if you don't talk to them, if you just talk at them, you'll never figure out if they're a real dick. And, you know, I tell entrepreneurs, you, it's horrendous. And I had a vent, an investor in the past who was a real dick you never want to do a deal with like if you have a gut feeling that this person isn't going to work out or you hear through the grapevine how they treat other people run like yeah. just run <laughs> because you're now, doing a deal with the devil one of the things i used to tell people and i just told them this and it could be wrong so for everyone who i've told this to if this is wrong i apologize sincerely uh they would ask me you know how do you approach a vc because i used to work with quite a few and, yeah. and help do marketing and pr and stuff mm -hmm. i would always tell them i said one Look at all the companies they've invested in. Look at the last time they raised a round. And then look at where they're at in that calendar. Because the worst thing you can do is go to a SaaS VC, right? And pitch hardware. Oh, that never works. It yeah, never you got to pitch what they're already buying. What they're already buying. And then it's like, oh, by the way, they're still raising money for a round. So they don't have any money to give you. Like did yeah, you go a to lot Florence of VCs D? are between funds. Yeah. Like if, if they're between funds, it means they just spent everything they had in the one fund and they haven't raised the next. They're no good to you yep. because they're in fundraising mode. They might be looking at deals so that they can package them up and sell their fund. But it does. It, by the time they get their money, you're probably gone. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. So you really need to know in a lot of some there's some angel investors out there, not VCs because they, they tend to be legit. But there's some angel investors who just want to sell you a service. Like they just want to sell you their hosting service or whatever, their legal services. And so you, oh, the first question you should ask an angel investor before you invest any time, before you even go meet with them, is when was your last three investments? When were they? Yeah. Like, because if they haven't made, if their last investment was six years ago, do you really think they're going to invest in you? Probably not. <laughs> and if that investment was a tax service and they can help you with taxes. Yes. Look at how much money you're going to save that you can put somewhere else. You yeah. know, and you're just like, mm, no, that's so not you gotta, you for. gotta, you gotta qualify the leads. Really important. Let me get back to my story because this yeah, is please. not quite over. Oh, so, okay. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, there's one more. There's one more twist. You know, a twist in this story. Um, in uh, I was uh, the VC basically handed me the term sheet, mm -hmm. and you know we we're trying to raise five million, and the VC turned to me and said, you know, we don't, we we want to give you more money. We want to give you seven million, which to me at that time was, oh my God, like I, you couldn't give me enough money. I was so, I would be so happy uh, to have seven million. But I quickly thought on my feet and said, what's more important to me than the money is the timing. Like I need this money yesterday. I can't wait a month as the lawyers hash out all the details, you know, yeah. we'll be gone. We'll be out of business by then. So I, I, I looked him in the face and I said, we only asked for five million. 
But I will tell you what, we will split the difference with you and take 6 million on one condition that you promise me you can close this in two weeks. He said, absolutely. I can close the deal in two weeks. We shook hands and the money was in the bank two weeks later. Now, what I did was I didn't beg him or tell him that I needed the money because we were about to go off a cliff in two weeks, (laughs) but I made it seem like I was doing him a favor (laughs) and getting him the deal. If he could, you know, get it to me fast, faster than other VCs, I would Mm -hmm. take his money. And so psychology is a huge part of doing any of these deals. And you have to remember that because uh, we're human beings. Like sure. in, no matter if the, it doesn't matter how analytical these VCs are, or whether they went to MIT or whatever, at the end of the day, they're human beings. Mm-hmm. And when you, if you want to get things done in a certain way, as the fundraiser, you have to be in control of that psychological situation. Now, question for you, because you know you you, you mm. you've got a book, you've got this. I mean, you're an yeah. expert in this field. But let's rewind really far back. You're a kid growing up. What's who's Steve Hoffman as a kid, and who are your influences? Is it mom and dad? Is it the grandparents? What what are, what are your pivotal moments growing up that 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 you if you look back, you're gonna go these these people in these situations kind of prepared me for who I am today. Okay, it's really interesting. Um, so, you know, I'm very, I can talk to anybody now. I can give talks in front of thousands of people, which I do quite often. Um, I can do podcasts, but I was extremely shy kid. Okay. Extremely shy, introverted kid. Uh, very uh, into my own thing, like nerd. <laughs> Doing my own thing. Um, and I, but I got a set of genes from two parents who were very different. So uh, my father uh, was literally a rocket scientist at MIT. Was a professor at MIT rocket science, wow. and my mother was this artist, free thinking, creative artist, and so I inherited, you know, the genes of each of those. So I was this. My father was very shy and nerdy too, you know. So I in so basically I was a combination of both, and I was just passionate. And my passion was I had two passions. So one was games. I was a total gamer. But these were the early days. And I was, you know, I was on my Apple II, uh, you know, playing games night and day. I was making board games. I probably made a hundred different board and role-playing games, which I was totally into. And then I was also into movies, like we're watching right now, The Shining. Yeah. So I made 50 movies, Super 8 movies as a kid. And in one of them, just so you know, was was based on The Shining because I love the movie so much. I made a movie called The Flickering. Which you could, t- and it was a parody of The Shining, and it was about this chef who, uh, when he's in this big house and he's cooking for these people, and when they don't like his chicken gumbo, he goes berserk with his ladle and starts sm- killing people with this I ladle. I love it. Yes, you know, the flickering, and I could show you that sometime. Um, but uh, it ties back into the, what we're doing today. And so, you know, when I, uh, you know, I was this kid who just loved creating. I loved creating stuff. And my dream was to go to either be a game maker or a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. That was my dream. And, but my father, who's very practical in in those days, very prescient, came to me and said, son, you should study computers because computers are going to change everything. (laughs) And 
he couldn't okay, dad. <laughs> and that was me i was like i respected my father i was like okay dad so instead of doing a you know film or games which were kind of impractical yeah. i went to electrical computer engineering and i absolutely hated it <laughs> i like did it was not my passion i was like doing this electric i was good because i was good at math i was like mm -hmm. advanced calculus nerd guy so it was like not a problem like i was acing all my classes but i just wasn't inspired okay and so uh, but i complete what i started so i got my degree and then as soon as i got my degree i had all these job offers and i said dad i'm not going to take them i am going to film school and i applied to two film schools usc and nyu those are like the two top yeah got got into usc and i went to graduate school and film school. So, uh, in, and it was just so much fun. And so, you know, I love movies. I, as you can tell, like I'm a film buff mm -hmm. and, and I went to film school and then I graduated film school. I went to work in Hollywood, worked my way up to TV, television development executive. Mm -hmm. So I worked in the industry. And when I was in the industry, ironically, um, I was on the development side and I felt like I wasn't being creative. Like I was just screening other people's ideas, like taking pitches. That was my okay. job to literally take pitches, which was like some people's dream job, but really not my dream job. I wanted to create, create, create. And, you know, I didn't have the money to make a movie. And, and then I, I bumped into this guy who's in our production company. It was in the company, a producer. And he, his cousin was a founder of the game company, Sega. And at that time, games were new. Like they were a small industry compared to film, like small. But, you know, me being a gamer and seeing the prog progression of where Nintendo and Sega were going with these games, mm -hmm. I was like, you know, games are going to be bigger than movies someday. Like, I just know it. Like, they're going to be bigger. This, it's, and, and, and I said, I'll do it. Send me to Japan. I want to work for this guy. So I interviewed with him told him a lot of my crazy ideas for games. He sent me off to their headquarters in Japan. That put me on this track where I was like working with Michael Jackson. We were doing this, uh, uh, this, this uh, ride theme ride game with, it was, I got to meet Michael Jackson. It was really crazy. And I was in this uh, Sega at their peak when they were, when they were literally on top of the world. Sonic the Hedgehog was the Genesis was the number one game company. They just surpassed Nintendo. And then being the crazy dude I am who always jumps around, I said, I'm still, I want to do my own game company. I don't want to work for this other company. I want to do my games, like mine. And so I literally quit that job, moved back to Silicon Valley. And that's when I became an entrepreneur. I launched my first company. It was a bootstrap game company and I was doing my dream. Wow. So, so, so that, that path led all the way to where I am. <laughs> <laughs> so now, I did that first bootstrap company, launched a game called Gazillionaire, which mm -hmm. is ironically what I do today, teach entrepreneurs how to be entrepreneurs, but in game form. And nice. Gazillionaire, for all you gamers out there, it's still on Steam. You can download it. It's like, it's, and we're, and we're actually, we're making a VR version of it right now. Like <laughs> Gazillionaire is being updated, but the original version is on Steam. And then I went from that company, which is called Lava Mind, into the company that I told you about raising money called Spider Dance, where we were raising money, which segues right into the story I was telling. Wow. So question, I mean, you know, just the way my brain yeah. randomly works, you know, you've got these, um, we're going to, the Super Bowl is coming up in a couple of weeks. They're going to play the John Madden game. They're going to still the digital game. And be like, oh, yeah. Wins. And then you're going to see who really wins in the, in the physical game. 
with Gazillionaire not knowing the game, just spitballing here. I'm wondering with all these new shows on CNBC and you know Entrepreneur, where you've got uh, what Glenn Stern's you know billionaire undercover. Yes. Will can you make uh, a million dollar company without anyone knowing your name and you're not invested, right? Can you use your smarts to make this company from zero to a million dollar company in a year, or whatever it is? Wouldn't it be cool to tie a game to that and have people play the game to see if it can happen, and then they watch the show to see if it does happen. Well, I need somebody like you to pitch it. <laughs> so I need to partner with somebody. This is the other thing. Get great partners, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I've been out of Hollywood for a while. So my connections are rusty. I used to know a lot of people in Hollywood. I was like very well connected. But these days I'm, I'm sort of out of that. But yeah, I still have this passion of, you know, that's why doing the interactive TV thing was so right on for me. It was like combining my Hollywood with technology. It was like so perfect for what I wanted to do. I've always been at kind of the crossroads of entertainment and technology. I, like you, I just love it. And I love, I love that entertainment can to is totally transforming. Uh, technology is totally transforming entertainment. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, all these, you know, it's, it's just constantly evolving. Like people are playing games and look at, like, look at the blockchain. Like I'm, yeah. I, have, I have a theory about the blockchain. The blockchain, blockchain isn't this amazing? It's like some amazing technology. But what's exciting about the blockchain is it's the gamification of investing. Mm -hmm. So what we've seen over the past 10 years is that a lot of people treat investing not as like we used to treat it with PE ratios and facts and all these things, <laughs> you know. They, those things don't mean a, a damn thing to the, the people investing today. Like, it's really like, can I win the game? Like, can I win this? You know, a, a lot of these blockchain, you know, ICOs are Ponzi schemes, but they don't care. They're like, we're, we're just going to get in and out. This is like, a, and you look at Wall Street bets, you know, the Reddit group, you know, touting GameStop, like the most ridiculous things and AMC, like these companies that are dinosaurs that are dying, literally, mm -hmm. but driving them through the roof. Why? Because it's a game. They're screwing the big guys like who are shorting them. It's the gamification of investing. So everything's become a game. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that I, I'm blown away that, it, you know, and, and maybe it's just because of the size of the company, but I think about greed as well. And I think about opportunity. Yeah. So like we're watching this, this show right here. Yeah. If this was a new, like Amazon produces its own movies and its own television shows, yeah. its own OTT platform, right? I'm, I don't understand why when I'm watching that, when you have the largest marketplace on planet earth, I can scroll over the screen or I can pause and I can see who's acting and I can pull up their IMDb. Why can't I buy their clothes? Yes. So and, and why, why can't so I funny. shop in real time right there? In the, in the early days of, of Spider-Dance, we were pitching that. We were pitching that to all the networks. I've been so pitching like, that for 15 years and everyone's yeah. like, oh, you're crazy. We're like, in the same, yeah, we, we literally, we had as our customers, Viacom, you know, MTV, the History Channel, A&E, we had Turner Broadcasting, Warner Brothers, NBC, we had all the big names were on our platform. So we were pitching them these ideas in like, like the very dawn of kind of the internet. Mm -hmm. And you know what it is? This is what I figured out. So for most people, there are two types of entertainment. There's lean forward and lean back. Okay. And when people are leaning back, like we're watching the movie, The Shining, and he's back in the bar now, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's crowded with people and he, Jack is back there asking advice from the bartender. Well, if I'm that bartender and I'm giving you advice, I'm gonna tell you that when people are leaning back, when they're watching Netflix, uh, most people, the majority of people aren't gonna lean forward. They don't want to put on, activate that other part of their brain. 
Uh, and then, but when they're on the internet and they're interacting with stuff, like you're on your phone and doing, all, you know, you're in a social network, those are lean forward, you know, that's when you would do it. So um, uh, that is the discrepancy. It's also, okay. yeah, it's also okay. intent. Like a lot of these things you want to buy at a certain time. Mm -hmm. So like Google is, is the beauty of Google, the, like the genius of Google is that every time you type in a search word or every time you're on Amazon typing in a search word, you're, you're revealing your intent, your intention at the moment. You know, so you got people buy when they're in certain moods, when they're in certain mind frames, their mindset, and they don't buy at other times. So when people are involved in an activity like a lean back activity, really hard to get them to buy. Interesting. That's Just interesting. really, really hard uh, thing to do when people. Uh, so I pitched this like crazy and I kept saying, why aren't people buying this? And, I, and you know, a number of companies did it. Uh, and we even experimented with that. We had ads running about different products in the shows and all this stuff. None of them ever took off simply because human nature was the barrier there. Wow. Yeah. That's fascinating. Because, yeah, because yeah. I, I think about it, there's, um, there's a group out of Europe and, mm -hmm. and Asia, and they put videos in the blockchain. What they wanted to try to do was create engagement in videos. Yeah. Yeah. For a long, and so they would... Frame by frame, they put the video on the blockchain and then you could engage. So I could be watching mm -hmm. a car race and I can mm -hmm. pause, look at the tires and go, I wonder what kind of tires those are. And then someone chimes in on the chat and goes, actually, it's these tires. Where are you located? I'm in LA. Oh, well, in LA, you can find it over here. And then someone jumps in and goes, oh, by the way, there's a taco shop around the corner. It takes about two hours to put the tires on. This is where you want to be, da, 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 da. And their engagement and what I like to call their eyeball hang time, their, the amount of time mm -hmm. they spent on the videos went up 200 plus percent. Wow. Okay. But it was automotive. It. it was it was specific to a gearhead watching a race, trying to figure out more about the car. Yes, it, this is the thing. So lean forward to your point. Yeah, a lot of a lot of people like nowadays, if you look at where it's really gone to the buying, uh -huh. like when you go to buy now and you go to a website of, of a company selling you tires, they're going to have really amazing videos there. Like yeah. and a lot of them are like entertaining, like they're like shows, you know, yeah. <laughs> to get you, you know, and they're going to be putting stuff that they're smart out on YouTube and all these platforms for the people searching uh, who are totally into like what tires they have on their car. Like, yep. <laughs> they, and, and that's where we've seen it merge. That's been the intersection that happened, but it doesn't happen on like movies like The Shining. We aren't, we aren't going to be buying stuff. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, I, mean, I, I would buy that red bathroom. Uh, yeah, but. the red bathroom. I'm not going to be buying those urinals, even <laughs> no. though they look really cool. And what was, oh, this was the Biltmore. The, yes. the, the bathroom was the Biltmore. It's a really cool bathroom. <laughs> and, it, and it's interesting too, and this, and this also ties in a lot to entrepreneurship, yeah. it, which is the isolationism, right? And, and, and I always caution entrepreneurs. I say, don't, don't isolate yourself. You, or you'll become like Jack Nicholson. You'll end up yeah. murder, trying to murder your whole family. Murder your whole family, go crazy. And more importantly, it's like when you isolate yourself, yeah. you're removing yourself from that fuel that got you yeah. that idea. Totally, totally. You know, I have the best ideas when I'm engaged in conversations with people like you, like creative, fun people. You should always be engaging people with your ideas. And, and you shouldn't be isolating yourself from your family because of course, you, you know, this is one of my rules. If you're not, if you're, if you, if you isolate yourself from all the people who really care about you, you suddenly become very stressed out. Like, yeah. <laughs> because people we're social 
creatures. Like we need social interaction to function well. And when you're stressed out, you tend to make bad decisions. True. Like really bad decisions. Like I'll tell you, I'll give you a specific example. Like I can be in my business and if I'm totally stressed out because I'm and I'm just like working night and day, I've cut off all relation with friends and family. I think the more hours I put into it, it's the only way to survive. And I'm putting myself under this huge pressure. Well, the more stressed I get, then I come to a decision, let's say to take out a loan to get to the next level, right? With my business, mm-hmm. I might say, no, I can't take out that loan because I can't deal with any more stress. Like I can't deal with that extra amount of stress. So I end up making the wrong decision when the right decision would have been to make the, take the loan. And if I was less stressed out, I could have thought more clearly and made that right choice. I like that. I, uh, I, I, feel, I feel the same way with you. It's like, I, I watch bad television sometimes. Just <laughs> yeah. what, one, like I used to- Just to unwind, to, right? Just unwind. I used to tell yeah. I, managed, I managed a PR firm. I was a senior yeah. vice president and I'd tell the staff, the owner got really mad at me. I said, no, everyone takes an hour and they read whatever they want to or watch a television show. He's like, on the clock? I I said, yes. You have to be able to talk to people. When the person on the other line, when the client, as you're closing down, you're getting to know the client, they go, have you seen Ozark? And they're like, you know what's cool about SaaS technology? The security implications. No, no, no. Did you see Ozark? Yeah. No, I don't have time. And so now I'm running a sweatshop. Because my people don't have time to watch one of the number one shows ever on 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 OTT platform, and and they can't see it because I'm driving them. No, 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 no. Everyone gets an hour. You get to read. You can watch a show. You do whatever, and tell me about it. And he's like, "Why are you having these people do this?" I said, "Because they got to broaden their minds, man." And and who knows? You got to have stimulation out. too to yeah. be creative. You know, we're in a knowledge industry. We're in a creative industry. Yeah. Uh, the ones who uh, actually are stimulated and come up with new ideas and talk to each other and collaborate better. That's those. I, I have another rule. I love rules because I put them in my books. <laughs> so, yeah. And that book know, again is you know, surviving a startup Yes, because people love rules, right? So one of my rules is it's not how many decisions you make in a day. Mm-hmm. You can make millions of decisions. It's a quality of those decisions that matter. Are you making good decisions? So like literally in a day, you could make one like really brilliant decision that could totally transform your business. Or you can make a hundred small decisions about things that don't really matter that have absolutely no impact on the direction. You're I call that 48, 52, 90, 10. And what I mean by that is really simple. And I, I don't live in rules, but I live in like little slogans, right? So yes. we will go left or right, black or white, 90, 10. Everyone says black, cool. Everyone says left, cool. We're good. There we go. Hey, so the font, are we doing a 10, 10.5 fonts? Is it new courier? (laughs) And now on the nuance, the 40, the thing that makes no impact on your decision on on how your business, like no one's looking at your letterhead going, can't believe these 10.5 courier. I know nobody gives a damn or your business cards. Idiots. (laughs) But you spent two days on it. Yeah. And you spent five minutes on a left or a right hand turn because it seemed so obvious. So, so the biggest decision you're making for your business is two minutes. And the thing that doesn't matter what shade of blue off the Pantone spectrum is two days and, and three marketing firms and $150,000 later, you're still a moron. Yeah. And, and, also, <laughs> and then also when you get stressed out, you tend to obsess on the little problems that you can solve. Yeah. Not the big ones that seem impossible which really need your intention. So that's another reason having work-life balance, so important. You know, they did a study of CEOs and they found out the CEOs who were successful didn't necessarily work more hours. They actually took a lot of time off. Yeah. 
Now, Elon Musk accepted, right? He's a machine, like he's insane. Yeah, but his brain's um, different. I mean, that's yeah, just and he, but and he can't can't stay married. His kids probably never see him, you know. Yeah. But he makes those choices. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, for most CEOs, yeah, it's not the number of hours you work. It's like what is the quality of those hours? I I, I couldn't agree more. And how do you plan your day? Yeah, uh, I think the other thing that entrepreneurs miss out on a lot. And if you do, well, I'm going to interrupt you yeah, here please. and say, if you do, if you uh, do like Jack Nicholson did and say, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, you're going to go insane. <laughs> and you're going to be a dull boy. Yes. You just are. A you very just... dull boy. And you're not going to make the right decisions. You're going to. No. Balance is, balance is crucial, but it's, it's also, yeah. it's, it, it shows that you're human. And, you know, v- v- vulnerability shows that you're human. The, the idea of tackling a big problem. The, 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 other, the, the other thing why I think startups fail is that they say they're gonna tackle a big problem and they're excited about it. And then to your point, they get stressed out and they tackle little problems. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Thought we were doing a big and problem. I do this myself. I uh, always have to catch myself tackling some little problem that doesn't matter and spending an inordinate amount of time on it. <laughs> you, gotta, you, gotta, you, gotta, you, gotta, you gotta create that. Yeah. Startups are so fun because they're like, we've got a business idea here. We're in the room. Yeah. Okay, good, we got it, we got it, right, let's go. Like, wait. What's your plan today? Yeah, and what what, what should I be doing today? Not yeah. not what do I feel like doing? What you know, where do my you know gut take me? That's often wrong. It's like what really is the most important thing that will have the biggest impact on my business that yep. I should be focusing on. And layer it out, folks. Take a minute with yourself and layer it out. When we were doing, we were talking about the show idea. The reason it came up, I give credit where credit's due. So this guy out of the Netherlands who I work with, love him to death, really smart entrepreneur. Uh, his name's Thomas. He goes by at the Harry Artist on Instagram. Does a lot of digital advertising. Did some face swap videos for me. He's just really cool. He's just a lot of fun. And he just has good out-of-the-box ideas. He'll be like, hey, what do you think of this? Like, I, I have a saying at the end. Well, you'll hear it. But, you know, then he makes me a shirt for it. He's like, do you like it? And I can say no. He doesn't get his feelings hurt. He's like, I'm going to try again. Like, let's just keep working together. And he pitched me an idea for chef, celebrity chef Joe Gatto to do a show with comedian Joe Gatto. And I messaged him and I said, hey, it's a great idea. But Joe Gatto, the comedian, just got divorced and he's stepping away from the practical joker. So your timing is awful. Mm. You are a European for sure who doesn't watch American television. <laughs> and I'm just busting his chops. And he goes, yeah. well, what should we do then? And I said, no, no, no. What's your idea? You know, I don't know, a chef and a comedian, and they can really engage with people because cooking and, you know, you did that show and you're talking to chef and it's just, there's something there. And I'm like, you're right, there is. I said, wait a second. We should talk to Brian Callen because he likes wine, he likes Mm -hmm. food, and he's just kind of a gregarious fun guy. Mm. And you've done a couple of things for him. Thomas, introduce me to his manager. Mm -hmm. Okay. Introduces me to the manager. She's like, uh, this is actually kind of interesting. Let's do a Zoom. Do a Zoom. The next morning, phone call. Brian Callen wants a Zoom with you guys. Awesome. And, you know, celebrity, you know, Joe Gatto, the chef, he's going, so Jay, you know, uh, what are we thinking about this and what's going on here? And I said, here's the five-year plan. And this is how it lays out. And this is why. This is why you want to use Brian. And this is what's going on. And this is why we want to use you. And this is the strategy. And he's like, but it's only been two days. And I said, yeah, but <laughs> I sat down for two days and mapped this out over five years, thinking it's not only just going to be successful, but we're going to have a hell of a good time doing it. And we're going to mm-hmm. leverage technology and we're going to mm-hmm. leverage relationships and assets. 
and we're just going to build a fun family that's going to go out and make cool stuff. They go think about Adam Sandler, but add technology to it mm. and his group of fun friends. We just need one piece of success to build off another. And we've got to stay dedicated yet flexible. And he's like, oh, okay. And then of course the next day, famous guy calls. He says, I want to talk to you guys about the show. And then, you know, and, and, and it's, but it's the pause to your point, right? It's the mm -hmm. planning. It's the mm -hmm. idea of understanding what you want, mm -hmm. concisely putting it in a pitch to yourself. I always tell entrepreneurs like, man, talk out loud to yourself in the mirror. You say a lot of shit in your head. And if you've been in a relationship, you know, it sounds good in your head. And then your mouth says it, and you're like, I didn't do that way. <laughs> <laughs> rewind can i take that back and you know you hear somebody say something obtuse out of character wild and weird doesn't match anything anyone else has said mm -hmm. you're turned off you're like okay these guys aren't organized they're not succinct they're not together they need they need some polishing you come back to me in six months with some polishing like you can't yes. have that can't have it got it got it got to work at it you know and i uh i, I wonder when you're leaving Sega, mm. right? When you're, when you're gonna start mm -hmm. your own company, that inner monologue, you're on the plane. What is the, what is the ratio of fear versus excitement? Oh, for me, yeah, I'm young, it's a new adventure, all excitement. All excitement. I had no fear leaving Sega. No fear quitting. Uh, the harder decision was to quit my job in TV because like literally the, the head of the company mm -hmm. uh, was this famous TV producer, Chuck mm -hmm. Freeze. And he was just like, Hoffman, what are you doing? Are you crazy? You're going to quit this job? <laughs> like people would kill for this job. <laughs> and they, and uh, so that was a harder decision. Uh, so once okay. I made that quitting Sega was just easy. You know, I went back, I met with Activision, actually the founder of Activision. Mm -hmm. I pitched him one of my ideas and he hated it. <laughs> See, really? No. Yeah. And, and so I'm not working there. And um, I met with EA, not working there. And then I just did it on my own. I was like, I'm doing it. Wow. Yeah. But it was stressful in the early days because we had no money. Uh, I wasn't even a good programmer. Like I wasn't, you know, I didn't care about engineering. So I wasn't really like, and I studied electrical engineering, not computer science. So my programming abilities were kind of rudimentary, but oh, I was okay. just, so it's just like, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to program this. Like, I'm just, and, you know, and, and I did a lot of the artwork myself because I can mm -hmm. draw and I just got some other artists to do it. And literally the game we made was outdated the day it was released. It was like, <laughs> No, it didn't look cool. It didn't look hip, even for the time. Like it was like crude, but you know what? The one thing I understood was gameplay because I was a game maker. I was a game player. And this was a game that was, I really wanted to create a nonviolent game that was totally addictive where it wasn't educated. Like it wouldn't be sold as, as an educational game as an, to be an entrepreneur. It'd be sold because people just wanted to play this business game. Like they wanted to play it. And that game was so super addictive that uh, we literally, I was just like, that's why I believed in it. So, but I had no, no way to sell this game. So what I did when I first launched it was I literally uploaded it to the internet. In, in those days, the internet was called bulletin boards. They were these yeah, yeah. online servers called BBSs mm -hmm. and where true geeks, only true geeks hung out and they would download your shareware 
And then I put in a thing, you can send the money to this address if you want the full version. And we will mail you in snail mail, the floppy disks, <laughs> the eight floppy disks that it takes to run this game. Wow. We received our first check, $15 from none other. You won't believe this. None other than Lord Gek. Lord Gek. <laughs> you don't know Lord Gek because he's no. just some geek out there, but okay. he's he, he is typical of the type of people who would buy the game off of BBS, right? I like it. I like the name Lord and, Gek. And he was in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. So I invited Lord Gek over to my house for dinner, like he was my first customer. <laughs> And we had had dinner. He's this big fat guy with this goatee and, you know, exactly the gaming geek you would think he was. So I was making almost no money with this game at the beginning, but somehow it got into the hands of the QA testers, the quality assurance testers, the game testers at the largest PC gaming company in the world, which at the time was Spectrum Holobyte Microprose. They did Civilization and all these great games out there. And uh, they... Uh, the, the game testers loved it so much, even though it was outdated, that they just went all the way up to the president. And the president called me up on the phone and said, we need your game. We, we want to put it out worldwide in every retail store. Wow. And I went in there. I met the president. And he had just moved over to this company from Mattel. He was the president of Mattel and had just jumped to this computer company. And I found out that he not only needed my game, he desperately needed it. Because they, I learned through listening to him that they had invested millions of dollars. And I had made this game on like $3,000, the price of my PC. They, he, he had, they had invested millions of dollars in, uh, in basically the Star Trek franchise and producing the Star Trek game. And they were a public company. And literally the, the product was late. It wasn't gonna ship before the end of the year. So they couldn't book the revenue. So he desperately needed something to fill that gap. And since his testing team loved my game, like he knew nothing about games. He was like, he had to have this game today. So when I was negotiating with him, as soon as I figured this out, I literally asked for everything in the kitchen sink. Sure. I was like, you won't own the sequel rights. You won't own this. You will, you will only have the rights to the game for the first year. And then we can release a sequel with you or with whoever we want. All these things. I was driving them absolutely nuts, but we got every term we wanted. That's the way to and, do it, man. And he put that game out there. Well, I got lucky, right? He put that game out there and literally it went head to head with his Star Trek that came out later in the new year and it got better reviews and he was pissed at <laughs> this little game. <laughs> Oh, that he I, mean, put, I would think he would be elated. He wasn't elated because he had he had greenlit the decision to invest all this money in Star Trek and oh, okay. our little game. You know how people in Hollywood would yeah. be the same way. Like if they had spent, you know, $50 million on this one property and then they mm -hmm. had yours for $2 million and you ended up outperforming them, they're not going to be happy. True. That's <laughs> they're, true. The, the executive who greenlit it, right? They would mm -hmm. want their 50 million. But, you know, they were happy our game was doing well, of course. But they, you know, they were mad that their Star Trek wasn't. That's <laughs> the whole point. Didn't get the good reviews. So I did this. And then another lesson for your entrepreneurs out there. I went to other game companies. Like I talked to other ones, that the biggest ones at the time, they don't, they aren't around anymore. We're like Broderbund and Sierra Online. Those were the two other biggest game companies. And like I had the sequel rights to Gazillionaire and we came up with other games like Zapitalism and Profitania. We're doing the whole series based on this. And I went to negotiate with those companies and I tried the same tactic to get everything I wanted. And I ended up pissing them off. <laughs> I killed the deal. 
like they walked away from me. So you can only do that when you have leverage. Like you have to know what the other side is thinking. Because if you like ask for too much and you don't have leverage, they're, they, yeah. they're like, they're too much trouble. Sure. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. No, no. I mean, with in the world of gaming and, and you're just yeah. seeing, you know, the just the, this rapid adoption, you know, and, and I, I like to make this trend. I, I think there's yeah. going to be a transition. I'd like to run this past you. It's yeah, 10 yeah. cents. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I don't care. Everyone, you know, calls the phone, the attention device. Let's get yes. your attention. Yeah. I think the next evolution, you know, where the technology group that I'm working with here, and I think the technology is probably that you know, this is going to go from an attention device to an engagement device again, but a real engagement device, a universal, multinational, multicultural engagement device, where I can talk, you know, we're using it to talk at people, and I think this is going to be used to talk with people again. Well, one thing we've already seen is that the biggest thing about the phone is communication with other people. Like if you look at the companies with the highest valuations, whether it's Facebook, you know, uh, it's all about talking to other people, right? In, 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 in the way that they've devised. But, you know, the social networks at Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, talking to other people. But what there's always room for innovation on these. Yeah. And how we're talking to other people in the future will change with technology. Because it's my belief that at a certain point, this is where I'm really interested in, mm-hmm. uh, new technologies, like how are they going to change the phone? So uh, the phone is a very clunky device for input, if you think about it, like tapping on the phone. You know, when I'm texting, some people can text really fast. I'm still clumsy, but it's still slow. Even if you chance, I'm constant typos. Right. It's annoying as hell, right? For a lot of us, but we put up with it. It's the best we have. Um, There's, they're now working and they have this working in the laboratory, you know, brain computer interfaces. Elon mm-hmm. Musk is putting one out there with Neuralink, but there's a lot of other companies that are even beyond Neuralink. And Musk makes a lot of hype, but this has been going on a lot long before he jumped on the bandwagon. Um, so we are going to get to the point in the not too distant future where we can actually think a thought and it will go into our phone. So we can have conversations by thinking. And if you think it's science fiction, it's not. They've already done this in the lab. Like at, at Brown University, they literally have done experiments with people with chips in their brains. Uh, now, of course, these people are paralyzed. They can't move their body. They have locked-in syndrome. But they can literally uh, think a thought, and uh, that couldn't be translated directly into a text message. Wow. Yeah. And they can do it in the lab means they will be able to do it in the future. Right now you have to have a brain chip, but in the future, we're going to be able to have technology that won't be invasive. You won't have to puncture your skull or inject something. Like Bluetooth. Yeah. Equivalent to Bluetooth. It'll be like, they already have these uh, EEG headbands that can Mm -hmm. read your thoughts, but they're very noisy. They're very crude. They can't read. They can read uh, whether you're stressed out, whether you're calm, things like that. Uh, they can read binary things, binary mm-hmm. things like whether you concentrate or not concentrate, but they can't read uh, really uh, detailed thoughts like language. However, um, there are new technologies coming into the marketplace that will be able to do this. And they're experimenting with these right now at Google and Facebook and lots of startups I know. And when that happens, we're going to see a total transformation. It will no longer be iOS or Android. It'll be the company that invents the brain operating system that interfaces between our devices, our computers, the internet, the cloud, and our thoughts will totally up 
and everything we know about the internet. So that's coming. And it's gonna be very very exciting. There's also AR, which has proven uh, very challenging, Mm -hmm. but we're making progress on that. Remember, we all, you know, we think AI has changed the world overnight and it has, but it changed the world overnight in 50 plus years. Like it's been around 70 years AI and longer than 70 years, like these algorithms, a lot Mm -hmm. of them. But it was only when the whole ecosystem came together, like for all everybody having computers, everybody being online, big data, bandwidth, processing power, storage, all of these things had to come into into being before AI actually could produce the results it produced. So with these other technologies like AR and VR, we we were kind of at the very beginning. We have to remember we're still in the early days. Yeah, I think, I mean, It's funny, like I look at the band's sunglasses and they can record. Yeah. I miss an opportunity if they are there, in my humble opinion, right? I don't, I mean, I don't know that you need the- They're gimmicky. They're gimmicky, right they, they are. You know, Google but Glass, the whole thing. It, it is, it's, but to, to your point about uh, the, the brain and engagement, there's an entrepreneur here in town, I mean, 10 years ago, he created a mind control skateboard. He'd put his hat on, he'd go 40 miles an hour and think forward and it would go forward. Yeah, you can do that now. Slow you can down. Do that now. Yeah. yeah, he did it 10 years ago. Yeah, it's been it was, around. It's been EEG around. has been around a century. Like it's, it's been around a hundred years. Wild. Yeah, yeah. It was wild, but, but I couldn't do it. So I could put the hat on, stand on the skateboard and think forward and I wouldn't go anywhere. Yeah, yeah. He trained himself to do that. It wasn't easy. Yeah, it was, he goes, this is a lot of work, Jay. Like there's a yeah. lot of mental yeah. energy that goes into this. It, that's another one of, you hit the nail on the head. So the reason AR doesn't work right now, uh, augmented reality, for those who aren't as techie. Um, so augmented reality is where we layer, uh, we literally layer the digital world on top of the physical world, right? Mm-hmm. And we want to interact with it, with a camera and your, your glasses or some other way or contact lenses, however people are going to do it in the future. Um, the reason it doesn't work is be- because people will always gravitate towards the simplest way to get something done. Like sure. the least that requires the, the brain dead way. Like you don't want to concentrate and work hard on this until like AR is hard to navigate. It's hard to use. It's clunky. It's not intuitive. Like the whole interface. Remember smartphones were around a long time before Apple came up, you know, Steve Jobs came up with, with the iPhone. The they work. <laughs> yeah. The sidekick and a ton of, and, and the Newton, he even launched the Newton total failure, but you really have, you know, you have to make it so simple to use that the simplicity, that, that there's no other, that the other way, like we're doing stuff on the phone. The phone is a beautifully simple device, the way it is now with the graphical user interface and everything mm-hmm. that we've done. It The brain computer interface or AR and VR, all these things have to be as simple as that for people to adopt them. I, yeah, I, I always tell people, entre- any entrepreneur that's going out starting up a company, uh, like I was talking to this one group and yeah. Like, well, our name's going to be, you know, wellness cohesive or whatever. And I said, fantastic. I'd like you to go down to the DMV. I'd like you to stand in there and I'd like you to ask everyone to spell cohesive. And if they can all spell it correctly, that's your name. Yes, exactly. And they're not going to be able to spell it. And they'll only be able to do it. So <laughs> think of a new name. Yeah. And, but and people look at me like I'm nuts. I go, you guys, you live in a bubble. And you're very fortunate that you've got a great education. You can do all these things and you're, you've got time to go to the people that are going to use your technology, go to the people that have to find you somewhere. It's like during COVID, I would always constantly message businesses. I think it's great. You're open. When are you open? 
I think it's great you're serving coffee. When? Yeah. Where? Like I get this, you know, it's like, hey, we're open. Okay, what are you open? I, what, where are you? Yeah, location. Like Where's simplest, <laughs> people always opt for the simplest. That's why location always wins when you're running a, you know, a restaurant or, you know, a Starbucks, you know, location yeah. is everything because they'll go the easiest one. Like yeah. people don't care. And maybe the coffee is not as good, but it's there. <laughs> and guess what? It's consistently not as good. That's the other thing. People are like, my tech is so much better than this tech. Going, yeah, yeah. The people, people don't care. Like, you know, people are taking pictures when phones weren't very good. Remember mm -hmm. when the cameras were crap? Yeah. People would always take pictures with their phone anyway, because it was in their pocket. Yeah. <laughs> and carrying a camera, a big camera around was clunky. It was clunky. I'm just, yeah. guys, think about people. Think about their experience. Think about what they're doing. Think about that. You know, it's, it's life. Yeah. So and when you're designing a product, simplicity and ease of use is your best feature and adding other features on that degrade that feature often make your product worse, not better. So a big mistake a lot of engineers make is thinking I'm throwing in more features. Like people are going to like it more. No, yeah. never, never works that way. Or my technology is so great. They're going to love the tech. People don't give a damn about your technology. They care no. what they can do with your technology. You know, what, what do they want to do that your technology enables? Your technology itself doesn't even matter. Yeah, no, I, man, I could not agree more. It's, it's, I sit down with these, I sit down with some wonderful entrepreneurs, you know, to, to your point. I'm like, hey, you guys, think about this in two ways. One, how are you going to tell the story to the people? And then two, for your partners, your advertisers, your other people out there, how are you going to help them? Don't ask them for anything first. Give first. Yeah. Figure out them. what they want because yep. what they want is what you, it, like, if you're not giving them, if, Another one of my golden rules yes. is if it's not in their top five, they can count it on one hand priorities. You will mm -hmm. never sell them. Yep. <laughs> Literally, if it's number six, forget it. If it, top three is best, right? If you, yeah. it, so if you, you got to know when you sit down with somebody, what are their top five priorities? If you're not on that list, you can spend forever with them. <laughs> They're never going to buy it. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting because, and I agree. It's um, I wonder in all your experience and in all yeah. the stuff that you do, what has been your favorite failure? Oh, before I talk about my favorite fail, I'm just gonna say we're on the snow scene. Uh -huh. It's snowing now in The Shining. They're, they're literally, they're doing a startup is like going through a maze, like you're gonna fail. You're gonna hit dead ends, right? You're just, you know, and in The Shining where they're going through the maze, the, the beautiful thing is uh, that the, the, the sun ends up beating up a much more powerful foe. Like in a startup, you're always the upstart. You're going against these big corporations, these well-funded companies that seem to have every advantage in the world. How can a startup win? Well, it's like in the scene in The Shining going through the maze. You yeah. know, the little boy is going against his father. He's like, he can't beat his father. Like his father has a knife, an ax actually. He's got dad strength. <laughs> right, dad strength. And he's just a little kid. But what he does is he innovates. He thinks smarter than his father, right? So he, go, he goes into the maze, which he has studied beforehand because the father didn't spend a lot of time there. The boy spent a lot of time in that maze. He knows every twist and turn. So he leads his father into the maze. He gets his father deep into the maze. And then what he does is he backtracks. He yep. goes steps in his own footprints going backwards so that he leaves his father when he follows him to a dead end trail, not knowing the way out. And poor old Jack Nicholson freezes to death 
in the maze. Yeah. That's how the little guy did it through smarts. So when you're a startup, you're going to hit dead ends. You're going to do all these things. But the one thing you can do is be smarter than your yeah. competitor, like think it through better. So I've, you know, there, there has been, uh, let me tell you, my, my biggest failure was a company I told you about at the beginning that we raised the money for the interactive really? television. Well, it's, it shouldn't be a surprise to you. Do you see interactive television today? You just told me nobody's buying shit when they're watching movies, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say as far as a cultural change, yeah, it's a failure, but as far as going yeah, but, through but it didn't, a painful process the and market, coming out on top. You the won. market, well, the market didn't materialize. So okay. people are, we had a whole platform where you could buy products. Like we literally built that in there. We had a, where you could watch interactive commercials, where you could do all this stuff, but we were very early. Like this was the nineties. Like, yeah. and you know, the, we were very, very early and uh, people would tune into the shows and it would be a great PR thing. We like the show was a hit. Web Riot was a hit. Like everybody tuned in, but making money on the on the other part we weren't making money is the thing we were oh, making okay. money as long as the tv networks wanted to use it to promote their shows but we weren't making money through e-commerce we were really we were ahead of google like this was there was no advertising revenue even online to speak of let alone in our interactive tv shows in these days like it, it was minuscule so what happened was when the dot-com bubble imploded we had no revenue like the TV companies, literally, what this is what happened. This is a story, and this was the biggest failure. A company, a public company came to buy us six months before the dot-com bubble imploded. Now, we were on top of the world. We had closed, I told you, all these network deals with all the major networks. We were the number one interactive TV company in the world. Uh, they offered us a good chunk of money, like really good. I could have walked away with a lot of money because we still had a huge amount of the equity. Mm -hmm. But... I didn't know it was my first startup and I made a mistake. I went, I wanted to sell, my partners wanted to sell. We were like, let's just sell this. Like, like this is a public company. It's a great offer for us. We walk away multimillionaires, but we went to our venture capitalists and they're like, you're crazy. Don't sell now. You guys are number one. You're the market leader. This is a huge market. You, you are on top of the world. They, you can get five times this, 10 times this, don't sell. And as the CEO, I bear responsibility. I listened. I said, okay, we won't sell. Well, little did I know, but you never know, that the whole world would implode, right, yeah. six months later, and we wouldn't have another opportunity to sell. And literally, once it imploded, not only did all the VCs stop funding, which was brutal in itself, but NBC is an example. Like, we had the weakest link on NBC, which was their biggest game show. You oh, know, yeah. Who wants to be a millionaire in the weakest link were the two biggest shows at the time, like in the, on the whole like world. And we owned one of them and Disney was doing the other internally. So we, um, we own this, but NBC, literally their interactive group went from 250 people one day. And the next time I walked in to meet with the, the vice president of their interactive group, he had him and two other people, like literally everybody else was fired. Like they literally, the networks abandoned interactive at that time. Like just, they just, during that, that implosion, that bubble implosion, they just like, cause their, their ad revenue was falling and they were like, you can keep running the show on your own dime and we'll share the revenue for advertising with you. And I was like, what revenue? What revenue? <laughs> like, yeah, no, that's like, there is no revenue. You were, giving away, set up. you were giving away those ads to promote the show. Like you were just like using this interactive piece to promote the show. I was like, but he goes, well, keep running it. Literally, we had no money. 
There were nobody who wanted to invest in a company that had no, that, whose revenue had just fallen off a cliff. So all of our broadcast partners in unison, in a, like a matter of two months, cut all of their budgets on interactive. No. So that is why we imploded. And that was extremely, extremely painful for me, like because that was my baby. And wow. you saw what I went through to get that company to where yeah. it was to be, I became, you know, my, myself and my partners, we launched the number one interactive TV platform in the world, signed up all these major networks. We were on top of the world. We had buyout offers and six months later, it all came crum crumbling down. Wow. See, like, I look, yeah. it's funny because I, you know, I, your story reminds me, well, it doesn't, it, it brings yeah. a thought to my mind, which yeah. is economic catastrophe comes and it was shelter in place, right? It's like the yeah. whole world, yeah, yeah. economies, let's shelter, yeah. let's shut it down, let's yeah. be quiet. We just had an economic global catastrophe that was tied to a pandemic. But in that instance, everyone doubled down on online entertainment engagement. They didn't back away and shelter in place. Everyone ran at them saying, you're gonna be at home, let me feed you stuff. Yeah, so it opened up. If you were running a restaurant, it was murder. It was yep. red rum. Let's use it from the shiny. Yeah, yeah. It was red rum, right? Murder spelled backwards. If you were running a restaurant, if you were running a travel business, murder. If you were running uh, an online business, it was heaven sent. <laughs> you know, the pandemic? Yeah. So it had yeah. two sides to it. It had two sides to it. It's interesting, you know, because your mind always goes to the most rational, nearest thing. You're like, why would entertainment pull back? in an economic collapse when everyone's going to be at home like that's the oh time. no it didn't it didn't make sense they panicked yeah they literally panicked they killed their whole interactive divisions every tv network did this they cut their interactive divisions to the bone they stopped spending on everything because at that time the internet was early mm -hmm. and in the remember these are tv executives they yeah. aren't internet people it's not today you have to put your mind in their in their mindset interactive they never truly believed in it like they believed in television to them. Oh, this thing is just a waste of money. Look, it's all at the heart. The house of cards is coming down. Like the bubbles burst. We, we, sure. there's, they didn't believe in the internet. They didn't see the future. We tried to tell them, believe in us, like keep us, you know, but no. So yeah, they, they just made their decision. And you know, when one does it, one major network does it, all of them do it. All like of them Lenin. do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, uh, it's interesting how, but technology wasn't their core anyway, and they weren't making money on it. They didn't get it. They didn't see the future. That's why they got eaten up by Netflix, right? If these guys got it, if they, they would have been Netflix. You know? Do you think, uh, you know, speaking of that, right? Like yeah. they're getting eaten up and how are they still around? I mean, so all, I, all I see is classic mistakes. It's called made by cable major monopoly, media. cable okay. monopoly. So there are a lot of old timers you know, not like me, I've cut the cord, who are still cable, but it's a dying industry. It's yeah. honestly dying. You know, Disney, you know, now they're pivoting, they're using their money, like Disney launched, you know, their own Netflix version, and it's mm -hmm. doing great, because they have content. That's yeah. the other thing they do, they have a monopoly on content. So they had, earlier, they had a monopoly on distribution and content, right? They lost the distribution, they still have the content. So HBO has a lot of great content. A lot of these guys have a lot of great content and they've merged, right? Like, so NBC isn't NBC alone. Like when I was pitching them, it's NBC universal part of, uh, you know, Comcast and all these other things conglomerated together. That's how they're surviving. That's how they're still around. Wow. No, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it blows yeah. my mind. And then yeah, I see but the them. industry has changed radically. They had to change. They had to consolidate because technology is eating away at what they're doing. YouTube, 
Netflix, you know, Google, others. Podcasts. I mean, this is where, yeah. it, it, you know, they just, you see them pulling their hair out. I love watching cable news. Look, yeah. like pull up the stats of any podcaster's number that just murders them. And they're just, yeah. they're pulling yeah. their hair out going, but, but we've been doing this for so long. Why? Why? It's like because yeah. and they even see the writing on the wall now. It's not like they're blind. They know, but it's yeah. still hard to innovate. It's hard for these big companies to innovate. And you'll see platforms like Discord right now, right? Mm -hmm. You know, this this gaming chat platform just going insane. Like that thing's gonna take over. You know, there's all these new platforms where people are moving Twitch, you know, Twitch, yeah. you know, that Amazon Telegram. Like, you know, tell, people spend more hours on Twitch than any of the cable networks. Like, they're like, talk about engagement, you know, between Twitch and Discord, like that's where the action is. Um, uh, the, but there is still, you, what Netflix realized, and it was really smart about this, is that uh, a mon monopoly is where it's all at. Like everybody's trying to get a monopoly and lock in customers. Netflix focused on content. You notice they, they wasn't just about technology. That's not yeah. what they, they understood that the technology allowed them a new way around the distribution bottleneck that the big guys controlled. But at the end of the day, uh, it, what's keeping Netflix alive now that everybody's launched their own, you know, service uh, Netflix clone, what's keeping them alive today is content. Like literally their content is what, why people stick with Netflix and that they are very smart about mining data of their users and using that data to determine what to make next. Yeah, they are. I mean, you know, going back to what we originally talked about, data is king and it- Yeah, data is king. If it weren't for data that and Netflix very intelligent use of data to, to guide their programming choices, mm -hmm. they wouldn't be around. True. They'd be, be murdered by Disney and H Viacom and all these others, you know, out there who are, have their own services. So, you know, we've, we've talked about the ending a little bit. We're, we're going to mm -hmm. wrap, we've got a couple hours and we're going to wrap this up uh, before I give my close. Yeah, they're gonna... going away in the snowmobile now. Yeah. It's the little snowcat machine. Snowcat. They're, yeah, they're, get, they're the, getting The movie's ready. wrapping up. It's wrapping up, folks. So I ask you, you know, it's um, the, the, the question here is, in all that you've done, in, in all that you've experienced and everything that's happened, when you look back on life, how do you want to be remembered? Uh, by this podcast, of course. <laughs> like, I, I, want, I want to put this on my tombstone as a uh, little video so that people can come and watch it. <laughs> spend two hours with you, hanging yeah, out. Yeah, watch The Shining as they do it. That would be a great way to be remembered. <laughs> Wouldn't it? <laughs> you know, yeah, I would, I would uh, like to be remembered as as the guy, uh, the, the, as a creative soul, who's out there making mistakes, fumbling my way around, doing crazy stuff, making wrong decisions, meeting really interesting people, having an amazingly fun life. I like it, I like it. Well, I always like two things I say at the end. Uh, I and a fun life with you, you're a great, you're, you're oh, amazing. I just wanna you. say it, you're like a great interviewer, you're so interesting to talk to, you just make this, you make it fun and you're doing something different. Like your show, your podcast is different than every other one out there. So thank kudos. you. I appreciate that. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, I'm always blown away, you know, whether someone's made an introduction or email and personally, you know, you go to the store, buy bread, buy those pesky avocados. And guess what? You want to eat it and it's already rotten. Yeah. Yes. But you can go back to the store and buy it again. You got to keep playing the game. And time is the one thing we don't get back. Time's the no. one thing, no matter how much money you make, no matter what you do. It's, you don't it's, get it back. You, you don't get it back. It. So the fact that you would spend two hours with me, not knowing me from Adam and be so engaging and share stories 
and, and share insights, it always blows me away. And I'm forever. Well, thank you. So thank you very much because you're sharing your time with a stranger and, uh, Oh, we're not strangers anymore. Not anymore. No. And, I, and that's the other now we're pals. Now we're pals. We're always friends. Like everyone leaves the podcast. Like I've, I've done VCs, entrepreneurs, yeah. actors, actresses, comedians. And I'm like, you know, we're friends now. And they're like, okay. I'm like, no, nope, we're friends now. And then the, you know, the other thing, you know, and then I say this, uh, you know, um, we, uh, we're going to leave a memory. We're going to leave something at the end of the day. And I'm, always encouraged because the people that decide to give away their information, to share their insights, those are the people that I think if you could, you know, take that Jackson Pollock piece and yes. look at the center and see the splattering of the conversations, you're the recognized, unrecognized spark of untold conversations. And I think you should hold that tight into your heart because I don't think you'll ever realize, and hopefully one day maybe you'll get a chart and it'll show you. It'll be a, you'll get pitched, but you'll get pitched on 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 being awesome. I'll be like, hey, let's look at the big screen here, mm -hmm. because you shared these stories, because you went on these podcasts, because you talked to people, because you engage. Yeah. Look at the conversations you started, and look at the companies you didn't even know you helped start. So thank you again. Uh, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's been an honor and a pleasure, and now it's everyone's favorite time. As you know, I mean, this is just a uh, an audio performance. We do video, so we can obviously visually engage a little bit more. But uh, you know, I've got a, I've got a face for uh, for for the radio and a voice for silent movies. So now I let my kid close us out as she sings her favorite song about the first time she took a poop by herself that she ad libbed as she waddled out to me and said, "Dad, I did it." Like, what'd you do, honey? She was, "I did a poop." Oh, I did a poop, and I was just like, "Oh, oh. and I wanted to mention if yes, people please. want to reach out to me." Yes, you can find me at founderspace.com, Founderspace. So It'll, if anybody wants founderspace.com uh, uh, will uh, be in the uh, in the description and yep. so will your startup book surviving a startup which is also founderspace.com forward slash surviving slash a slash or dash a dash a startup. But I'll have both of those in the uh, description so folks please check check it out. And Steve, I brother. want to hear this poop song. So you're much. Gonna, well, you're, you're gonna, uh, I'll, I'll message it to you because I have it, uh, but uh, it's also at the end of this. Uh, we close out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop recording here, but I, I just I can't thank you enough, sir. I really do mean it. And uh, if you're ever in Austin, do not hesitate to reach okay, out. Okay. Yeah. That's on my my bucket list. I want to go to Austin soon. And then so you're, will, you're in the Bay Area, right? I am. Okay. If yeah. you're out here, let me know. We'll go out for a beer. Sounds good. I love it. I love it. Yeah. So this is great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I wanted to ask you a favor, and this yes. is how I get all my podcasts. If you uh, think I would be right for some other uh, good podcasts that you know, um, I love an introduction so I can. I got I got one for you, my boy Sean Cali Media Barbecue Man. He's got this um, awesome. marketing marketing, uh, and it's it's basically just takes a holistic. He took a business, yeah, that was doing three hundred thousand dollars a year pre COVID, yeah. and turned it in, in a restaurant and turned it into a three million dollar a year business during COVID. Wow. Okay. And Smart he likes guy. to talk with VCs and entrepreneurs and oh, thinkers. Perfect. And he Perfect works with map. Toast, you yeah. know, just trying yeah. to create new ideas and invigorate a legacy industry. Oh, and great. I love him for it. And I will oh, happily uh, introduce you. Okay. Wonderful. And Fantastic. I will promote this show like crazy when it comes out. You let God bless you. Well, I will, I will definitely let you know when it comes out. And once yeah. again, I, I greatly appreciate it. So thank you. And folks, here it is. She's singing about poop. Peace.
there we go. I think okay, awesome. Da, 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 da. Maybe not. Oh, I thought you had stopped already. <laughs> uh, no, no, it's all good. Yeah. Okay, uh, I have to jet. I apologize. Yeah, me too. I have to eat lunch. I'm starving. <laughs> you go eat lunch. You have a good one. Okay. I appreciate you. Uh, we'll talk soon. Take Thank care. you so much. Bye -bye. Cheers. Bye-bye.